Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, part two of our interview with David Bakavoy. David Bakavoy is back with us specifically today to share his insights with us about the book of Abraham. Good morning, David. How are you doing? Good morning, RFM. I'm, I'm well, I'm awake and excited to, uh, to have this opportunity to share some thoughts with your audience. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, I want you to know that part one that went up a week ago, part one of our interview was very, very well received by the listeners. They love hearing from you. They love hearing not only your insights and your education about these things, and the insights that come from that education, but also your personal story, which you shared in some detail with us last week. That was very meaningful to many people. I've received a lot of email response about it, and I know that you have too. Well, I, I have, and that's, um, I want to thank you, RFM, for giving me that opportunity to share things that have, have obviously touched a lot of people. I'm, I'm grateful for that opportunity and for the incredible messages my wife and I have both received from your listening audience. What a wonderful group. I mean, we've received so much love and support and um, expressed to us over the past week. And uh, it's meant a lot to us. So, so thank you to all those who listened and have reached out with, with love and positive feelings. Well, I think that was a great prelude to what it is we're going to be talking about today, because you got to talk not only about your journey in the church and your faith journey, but also a great deal about the education that you've received and the tools that you have learned and honed in order to analyze texts, and specifically ancient texts, and even more specifically, the Bible. Yeah, this will be a fun morning. In fact, I was uh, so excited off to tell the audience, I, 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 you get older, it's harder to sleep at night, and about 3 a.m. I woke up thinking, oh, Book of Abraham, we're going to do this tomorrow morning, RFM, and uh, so I you know, was excited, but now I'm feeling a little bit of groggy, it's just kind of the way it goes. Well, I hope that the excitement will kindle your enthusiasm, and get rid of that grogginess. You'll get your second wind here. Good. <laughs> well, well, in talking about the book of Abraham, the first thing I want to say is that we, and when I say we, I mean I, have spent a great deal of time not only with uh, Brian Hauglid, but also with Robert Rittner, talking about the book of Abraham from a very specific perspective, and that perspective being, how was it translated, the method that was used in order to translate it. And today we're going to talk more about the text of the book of Abraham and what we can learn from the text itself. We're going to leave for a large part, maybe not completely, how it was translated, but focus mostly on the text. And this is something that apologists will be happy to hear because I cannot tell you how many times I have heard apologists, including Carrie Muelstein, recently say that we really need to not spend so much time talking about the method of translation of the book of Abraham, and I think that's probably because he'd rather not talk about it, but focus instead upon what the book actually says and how meaningful it can be in our lives. Have you ever heard that said? Oh, absolutely, and I, and I agree with you. That's typically the the response that is given by apologists is, well, let's, um, you know, it's one thing to consider how it was translated, and they don't want to necessarily ignore that. It's just, uh, you know, the evidence for their perspective is not good. And so, of course, they're going to talk about, well, uh, what's inside the text that that helps it, help us understand and, and date it, and from their perspective, present it as an ancient 
um, translation of something that came to us from Abraham uh, himself. So, yes, um, let's let's actually look at the text from a biblical scholarly perspective and see what happens. Let's do that. And I will tell you that, um, not to give any spoilers, but I think that overall what I took from this, and by the way, I have done so much research on this matter for my entire life or large portions of my life, but in this past week especially, I have gone back, I've read the different essays in the recent publication titled Producing Ancient Scripture that relate to the book of Abraham. There's a lot of great material in there. Uh, that was edited by, among others, our friend Brian M. Hauglid. Um, I've gone back and I've reread the book of Abraham and made a bunch of marks in it, lots of things appearing to me now that maybe had not appeared to me before once I'm able to read it from a new perspective. And we'll talk about some of those things tonight. But first off, before we even talk about the book of Abraham, I would like to talk about Abraham himself as a person as an individual who actually lived about 1800 to 2000 BCE, because in a very recent podcast that Kerry Muelstein was on, he said that the majority of people, most people who live on the earth, believe in Abraham, believe in his existence. And then he qualified that by saying it was only a very small minority, not just a minority, but a very small minority who don't believe that he actually existed. Is that consistent with your understanding, David? You know, I, right when he, he expressed that, I, I thought, oh boy, that's a very problematic assertion to make because uh, for, for a couple of reasons, beginning with the fact that what, what Kerry is doing there is actually presenting a logical fallacy, right? Um, the technical term for that is argumentum and ad populum, which means appeal to the people. Easy for you to say. <laughs> Appeal to the people, which is this argument that most people believe something is true, therefore it is likely to be the case. But, I mean, how many times in history is that proven wrong, right? I mean, the earth isn't flat. We know that now when most people believed it was at one point. So that's really a logical fallacy to begin with, to present it that way. But in terms of the, of the evidence... Um, it's a lot more complicated, of course, than Carrie is suggesting to his audience. Now, the story, as our audience will be aware, the story of Abram or Abraham, it's presented to us in Genesis, the first book of the Hebrew Bible. And Abraham is introduced at the end of chapter 11 in that genealogical list. And then his account will continue narrating the events of his life up until his death, um, which happens in Genesis chapter 25. And the story of this man begins with God calling him to leave his homeland and journey to the land of Canaan, right? And God gives his, uh, gives his promise that Abraham will receive two blessings. Now, I know there's more in the book of Abraham itself, but we're just talking about what is there in Genesis. In Genesis, he receives from God two promises, one that he will receive seed, meaning posterity, and the other that he will receive land. And RFM, the two, the two promises technically function together as, as, as a complementary unit. Um, and if you can, you can think about it this way, what good, would a large post, what good would a large posterity prove to someone if there was no place to put it? And on the other side of that, what good would it be to hold a lot of land for perpetuity as God promises without posterity to bequeath it to? 
So the two promises really work together as a complementary unit and are the focus of the story as it's presented in Genesis, because the story of Abraham really appears as a continuous literary cycle of events where God extends the promise to Abraham of seed and posterity. And then something horrific occurs that threatens one or both of those promises. So, for example, our audience will think about the story, and and right after Abraham arrives in the promised land of Canaan, what is there? There's a famine, right? And the famine threatens God's promise of the land. So Abraham leaves the land. He journeys down into Egypt where he loses his beautiful wife, Sarai, and that threatens his ability to have the posterity that God promises. And then he goes back to the land and um, with Sarai, and God renews the, the promise of land and seed. Now, this RFM happens, this cycle of covenant and covenant frustration, followed by covenant renewal. It happens again and again throughout the, the entire Genesis account until you reach chapter 24, which states that um, the very beginning of it, that Abraham was old, advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So that's that's the story that is presented to us through the book of Genesis. And the very structure of the narrative suggests that this is a highly structured literary account rather than an historical biographical record. Um, Even the account of of a Jewish ancestor, if you will, who leaves Babylon and enters the promised land to scholars is an obvious literary reversal of the Jewish exile from Canaan into Babylon in 586 BCE. So in other words, it's too highly um, structured to necessarily be um, to be a historical account as opposed to a, to, to a literary composition. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And by the way, when you're talking about all this frustration, it's very interesting because, of course, it brings to mind the famous stories about how uh, Abraham and uh, Sarah, I almost said Sarai, sorry, Book of Mormon listeners, um, Sarai, or Sarah, his wife, right? They're mm-hmm. so old they can't have a kid. Mm-hmm. And so there has to be a miracle that happens so that they can have a child. And that child, of course, is Isaac, correct? Yes. And then God commands Abraham, several years later, to sacrifice Isaac, which, of course, would be a frustration once again of that promise to have posterity. Exactly. Exactly. You finally get to Genesis chapter um chapter 21, and Abraham is in the land. He has Isaac, the promised heir, and we think they're going to live happily ever after. And then you have the Akedah or the binding story that is so powerful in 22, which is, again, you're precisely correct, another literary example of this cycle where we enter into covenant frustration. You know, I understand the scholars, there's a lot of debate among scholars as to how old Isaac was at the time of the attempted sacrifice, at the time of the binding in Genesis 22. But my understanding from the research I've done is that scholars have generally agreed that he was either, Isaac was either 12 or younger or 20 years or older. Had you heard that, David? Yeah, it it depends upon if someone is going to try to figure out his an age based upon the information in Genesis itself, or if someone is going to turn to the later traditions about the narrative that evolved in Judaism and in Christianity that... Um, that see him as a bit older. Ultimately, right. I don't think there's any way for us to, to be certain. And, and they're probably not historical people in the first place. So, Right. Well, David, the basis for that by the scholars is that he was either 12 or younger or 20 or older, because if Isaac had been a teenager, 
it would not have been a sacrifice. No, <laughs> I have heard that joke now that you mentioned it. That was That's an great. extended straight line on my part. Sorry. <laughs> no, that was good. Thank you. You're right. You're right. It would not have been a sacrifice. Okay. But we're talking about, and you just got to the point there, I think that you were driving toward about most scholars do not believe that Abraham actually existed as a person. That's, that's true. And, and, you know, it, it, because of what I've mentioned so far, that's the evidence for his, um, for his, uh, for his life that right there in Genesis. And of course, history requires evidence. Historians do not um, possess any of that evidence beyond the traditions that are found in Genesis. And for this reason, scholars cannot show that the patriarchs in Genesis, whether it's Abraham or Isaac or Jacob, that they actually exist. Now, um, there's little doubt, RFM, that the stories concerning these ancestral figures, at least in part, derive from oral tradition. Because the written sources that appear in Genesis cannot be dated earlier than the ninth or eighth centuries BCE, some perhaps even much later. And these sources were originally written or composed in Hebrew. We can tell that as scholars. And Hebrew did not exist as a written language until the 10th or possibly 9th century BCE. It will actually come as a written language um, to us through the Phoenician, originally Phoenician script of ancient Canaan. And so, you know, as you mentioned, the, the internal chronology of the Bible would indicate a date of around 2000 or 2100 BCE for Abraham. And, um, you know, if, if he was indeed a real person from the past, this would mean that the stories about him that derive from oral traditions would have been circulating for basically a thousand years before they were put down to writing in the form that they appear in Genesis. And that's too long of a time period um, for us to, to feel that it, it preserves anything that is, is necessarily authentic or, 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 or legitimate about this man. Okay, and as I'm understanding what you're saying, it could not have been earlier, probably was not earlier than around 1000 BCE, because that was the time that the Hebrew language developed, correct? Yeah, so that's when the language is going to develop, and the, this, the book is composed in Genesis, or in Hebrew, still waking up here, but um, <laughs> as, it's, uh, you know, as it's composed in that language, it, that's the absolute earliest. Well, the sources are later than that, too. So, in other words... You know, at one point, scholars tried to theorize that um, oral tradition was an accurate way of preserving authentic memories of the past. But more recent research anthropologically on this um, has shown that that in reality, um, oral oral cultures expected stories to change and, and they changed them anytime a storyteller was was was, was providing a new context um, for that account. And. Um, you know, there's been some great research on this. I, I would actually recommend um, to your listeners. Um, oh, Bart, you mentioned Bart Ehrman in the last uh, in the last uh, episode, and he did a book recently, uh, I think 2016, so just about four years ago from the time we we're recording this, called Jesus Before the Gospels. And in it, he he draws a lot on the anthropological research and problems for oral tradition. So assuming that Abraham, if he was a real person from 2000 BC and his, his account is composed a thousand years later, it would be difficult. That's not strong evidence. Like you talked about in the last, e last episode as a lawyer, it is evidence. It's some evidence, but it's not, it's just not compelling. 
And if I understand you correctly, there are some scholars who would believe that at least some parts of this Abraham story was composed after 586 BC because it wouldn't make any sense to reverse the Babylonian captivity of the Jewish people taking in the captivity in Babylon in 586 BCE, reverse that with the story of Abraham coming out of Babylon until after they were taken into captivity. Exactly. That's precisely it. And there are many that would raise that argument. Because the, the story of Abraham as well, we talked about in our previous podcast, is filled with anachronisms. Remember the clock from in the book from uh, Julius Caesar, the play Julius Caesar. But um, in Genesis, um, well, in chap- throughout Genesis, the Philistines are mentioned in the stories, even though the Philistines did not appear in the land of Canaan until the 12th century. So they couldn't have been there with Abraham. And it's the same with the uh, Arameans who assumed a prominent role in, um, in the account um, concerning Jacob, who's uh, Abraham's grandson. But they're only attested in the 11th century BCE. So, you know, there are other anachronisms that we could point to. Abraham's story mentions the, the town of Beersheba. Uh, yet we know from archaeological evidence that Beersheba was not settled before the 12th century. And, and these are the types of anachronisms that indicate that we're not dealing with a reliable historical source when it comes to Abraham the person. You know, along those lines, I was reading through the Genesis account, chapter 12 of Abram at the time before he gets the new name. But uh, verse six, there's also this interesting textual indication where it says, And Abram passed through the land unto the place of Sikkim. Mm-hmm. Unto the plain of Morah, oh, and the Can- oh, and this last little note, unto the plain of Morah, period. And the Canaanite was then in the land. Very good. Very good. That is, a, that is one of the great anachronisms that first pointed scholars in the Enlightenment period to the fact that the concept of mosaic authorship of, of Genesis was problematic. Because obviously someone saying the Canaanites were in the land at that point is writing at a time period when the Canaanites are no longer in the land, when it's simply dominated by um, the people of ancient Israel. Right. Well, um, have you said everything you want to say about that? Because what we were doing was we were addressing Kerry Muelstein's assertion that the vast majority of people, I think he said in the world, believe that Abraham was a real person. You pointed out that's a logical fallacy. You said it was something in Latin, I think it was, back in eighth grade when we were learning about logical fallacies mm-hmm. at Kent Junior High School. I think we called it the bandwagon <laughs> fallacy. I don't know if oh, you've ever heard of that one. That makes sense. I, I, I haven't heard it called that, but uh, yeah, that's what it is. I, you know, I, there's, I, yeah, let me jump into this though and, and state that you know, what we've talked about so far is the fact that there is evidence that he was real, but it's it's quite weak and it's problematic. But the Bible actually provides scholars with evidence that Abraham was not a real historical person, commonly identified as the most important patriarchal ancestor of ancient Israel, which, of course, is the way that he's presented in Genesis. And so we should talk about that for a minute. Um, and what that evidence is, is that um, the Bible does not contain any reference to Abraham in the writings of Israel's 8th and 7th century prophets, whose books do appear in the Hebrew Bible. Um, So those 8th and 7th century, so the earlier writing prophets in the Hebrew Bible, they, they know about some of the traditions that are talked about in Genesis. So for example, you know, Amos um, and Hosea will talk about Sodom and Gomorrah, very important event in, in Genesis. And, 
Uh, the story of Jacob and Esau is kind of mentioned or hinted at again in Hosea and the Exodus from Egypt and Israel's wanderings. Obviously, those narratives are, are talked about by these early writing prophets, but there is not a single reference. This is very important. Not a single reference um, to Abraham until the later books that date to the sixth century time period. So you'll find him, for example, in Micah, you'll find Abraham mentioned in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, and in Deutero and Trito Isaiah. So second and third Isaiah, which scholars recognize are later additions to the book of Isaiah, either from the exilic or post-exilic time period. So this is very surprising, RFM. Um, for who arguably is the most important figure in Genesis. If Abraham, therefore, was well known, the argument that scholars are raising is why wouldn't any of these prophets have mentioned him? That is interesting because that, that does follow along with the question I was going to ask you, which is what is the first extra biblical reference that we have to Abraham? But even within the Bible, we find him mentioned. Actually, we don't find him mentioned by the earliest authors or the earliest prophets in the Bible, but only later prophets, which are basically around that time period, right around the Babylonian captivity of mm -hmm. 600 or 586 BCE. When these accounts of Abraham were being composed and put together, and that's why they, they know about him. So that, I, I, that's a very important piece of evidence. And, you know, maybe we should just for a moment, I know we're, we're this is kind of getting a little bit long, but maybe, I don't know, should we talk about the uh, history of traditions? Um, I tell you what, I can't ask my audience right now whether they want to hear about it, but let's, can we move on to one other thing? And if, sure. if it's okay. Oh um, yeah. You, you direct us. You direct okay. Us. Um, the history of traditions. I know there's a lot. I mean, I know that we understand that the Bible and these, especially these early accounts, these prehistorical accounts, if I can call them that in Genesis and actually in probably the entire Pentateuch, but these prehistorical accounts like with Noah, Mm-hmm. The Hebrew people, as they developed and as they created their origin story, their backstory, the reason that it is that they came to become God's chosen people, they seem to have no problem adopting stories and myths from other cultures and reworking them to adopt them as their own, such as Noah. Yes, that's precisely correct. Can you just mention that a little bit? I think there's something about, uh, what is it, Gilgamesh or some kind Gilgamesh. of Babylon? Sorry about that. Uh, Gilgamesh. No, no, no. Some kind, is that Babylonian? Yeah, okay. So what this is really, there's a very famous statement that was, um, that was made um, by a German scholar in the 19th century. Um, as a lot of the cuneiform texts were coming out and being discovered and, and, and translated for the first time by scholars. And he made the argument that without Babel, meaning Babylon, without Babel, he said there would be no Bible. And what he meant by that is, is that um, the text from ancient Mesopotamia have had a tremendous impact upon, um, upon the upon the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible. And from that time period on, scholars have uncovered more and more evidence to sustain that position. So, for example, Genesis chapter 1 has been influenced by the um, Babylonian kingship and creation narrative Anuma Elish. And I talk about this in my book, Authoring the Old Testament. 
um, than the story of the first humans in Genesis 2 through 3, or what we call Adam and Eve. Yes, that's the one that shares a lot of in common with the world's oldest literary epic, the Epic of Gilgamesh, which comes out of ancient Mesopotamia. Um, then you've already mentioned the flood stories, which um, are very early on and come to us from a tradition where flood flooding was a problem for the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. And so these the, the universal flood story comes to ancient Israel from, from Mesopotamia as well. And, and then, of course, you have the Tower of Babel story itself, which is a polemic against building and ziggurats, which is Mesopotamian-driven. And then you have Abraham, the ancestral figure, coming out of Mesopotamia and going into the land of Canaan. And then if we go into the legal, well, legal text of the Torah, you have um, the so-called covenant code, legal code in Exodus, which has been shown to have been influenced by um, the laws of Hammurabi, the oldest complete law collection in the world from ancient Babylon. The uh, book of Deuteronomy um, has been shown to have influenced by the uh, Neo-Assyrian vassal treaties. So um, what happens, what we believe happened, RFM then, and why this is all transpiring in the Bible, is because these sources were composed when a time, during a time period when um, then it, beginning with the Neo-Assyrian Empire that they were, um, they controlled ancient Israel and ancient Judah and scribes were being trained in these cuneiform texts and traditions. And so what they did is then that they composed their own versions of these accounts. Um, and uh, that's why the scholar was saying without Babel, there would be no Bible. And ultimately that's another important reason for why we should recognize that Abraham is coming from Mesopotamia and Ur, um, which is originally a Sumerian city-state, and something that causes problems um, historically for the Book of Abraham. Is what you've discussed there, is that in a nutshell the idea that you mentioned about the history of tradition? No, actually the history of traditions that I was referring to is, is I mean, it's connected with that ultimately, but just very briefly what that is talking about is, um, that, you know, some biblical scholars maintain that the traditions concerning Abraham and the patriarchs in Genesis, that they were originally independent ancestral stories that were combined in the Genesis sources in order to define the relationship of the people of Israel to one another. And that's what I'm talking about in terms of, of the um, history of traditions. Okay, very interesting. Now, you had mentioned something to me about uh, going to the book of Abraham now. If we can go to the book of Abraham itself, sure. Sure. let me just give a 20,000-foot view of the structure of the book of Abraham for the audience, if that's okay. Because, you know, we have this book of Abraham, and it's got three pictures in it, and we, we have it in our scriptures in the LDS Church, but really, functionally, all we use it for is one passage in chapter 3, verses, what is it, 23, 24, about um, uh, the pre-mortal existence, right? Mm-hmm. That's yep. pretty much all we use it for. But there's five chapters, and we're going to go into those five chapters. But before we did, I thought we'd give this brief overview. So chapter one of Abraham gives us the backstory on Abraham and, of course, the famous attempt to sacrifice him as a young person. Uh, it gives us the reason that Abraham had to leave Ur, which is, of course, something that's completely missing from the Bible account in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. It just says that he left. But now Abraham chapter one is going to give us the whole 
reason behind it and the story behind why it was that Abraham had to leave. And that's because this attempted sacrifice, uh, things are going bad for him. And I'm sorry, I shouldn't be looking so much at my notes here. Uh, I did 16 pages of notes for crying out loud. That's basically, great. that's the story there. And that's the first half of Abraham chapter one. The second half of Abraham chapter one is going to give a backstory on Pharaoh, which we'll get to when we're talking about priesthood here in a minute. Then chapter two, chapter two now is a reworking of Genesis chapter 12, verses one through 13. It's very much like it's a Joseph Smith translation all over again. Joseph Smith has already gone through this material as part of his Joseph Smith translation back in 1831 through 1833, I believe it is. And now it's 1835, and he's going to go back, and he's going to redo Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 13. It's not the entire chapter of Genesis chapter 12. It's just up to the point where Abraham is about to enter Egypt. He never quite gets into Egypt in the book of Abraham. Chapter three now is this vision that Abraham has of the heavens. This is the astronomy chapter. And that's something that was apparently significant to Joseph Smith as well. Uh, the reports are that as soon as he saw or shortly after he saw the papyri, he identified certain things on them, probably drawings or vignettes. Uh, my guess is maybe uh, the hypocephalus drew his eye in this regard that it reminded him or caused him to think of an astronomical chart or table that there was astronomical information in there related to the stars, and that that's what uh, prompted him to come up with that material. Uh, I'm not sure if that's the case, but I think so. Of course, it, in Joseph Smith's day and age, and especially within his culture, that limited culture in which he lived and moved and had his being, astronomy was not so different from astrology yeah. either. They were kind of combined there. Uh, there was some science to it, but there's also a lot of things that we would look at today and think of not so scientific. We know Joseph Smith had a Jupiter talisman that he carried with him because Jupiter was the governing planet of his birth. So he did see some importance, and I think a lot of importance, in the effect that the stars and the planets had upon us here in this life. But then that astronomy in chapter 3 segues into a metaphor about uh, the gods or the divine beings and a council of sorts in heaven about the creation of the earth. And then at the end of dispute in heaven over who should be sent down at the end of chapter three. So that's chapter three, right? And then we're getting to the end here of my 20,000 foot view. I want to keep it 20,000. I keep getting lower and looking for more details at this point. Sorry, my bad. Chapters four through five, finally, we get to the end of Abraham. And Abraham, he never gets to Egypt because this part at the end of chapter three, we're talking about the, the gods or the divine beings in heaven. This now is used as a jumping off point to talk about the creation of the earth and those who will be rulers in the earth. It comes into another creation account, which is basically a recapitulation and a reworking of what we have in the Bible as Genesis chapter one and chapter two. And we'll talk about that more later, a great deal, I think, because that really comes into play with your understanding of the documentary hypothesis and what it can tell us about the text of the book of Abraham. Now, not wanting to go too long here, I want to ask you this question because you had made a really interesting observation to me when we were speaking on the phone the other day, and that is about the location of the story in Abraham chapter one. And specifically, Abraham chapter one does talk about this as occurring, the sacrifice of uh, Abraham, etc., as 
it was in the land of the Chaldeans. And then later on, it talks about it very famously as being in Ur, the city of Ur, of the Chaldees. Now, there's been a great deal of talk among apologists about the two different Urs. And it kind of reminds me of the two Camorra theory. I've mm -hmm. sort of developed this rule of thumb that when people, apologists in the church or other people, start trying to make two things with the same name, it usually means that they're having trouble with their argument. And not all their evidence will fit under one name, so they've got to come up with something else of the other name. So I understand, though, that scholars do agree that there may have been or probably were two different cities named Ur. One is Ur of the Chaldees in Babylon, which is way, way down south um, by the rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates. I couldn't give you the exact location. But basically, it's a place that Egypt never had any influence in the course of Egypt's great and long history, never had any influence that far away from Egypt itself. And so there's a second location that has been proposed by scholars as a possible site of Ur, which is way up in northwest Syria, or as I understand it, northwestern Syria. And that is a place where maybe the Egyptians had a little bit of influence, some degree of influence, not a whole lot of overwhelming influence, I think, but there's an argument that could be made that Egypt had some influence there at three different, at three different times in history. And the closest one to Abraham is around 1800 BCE. And so that's why John Gee goes to that time and place to look for Abraham and dates him to that time because of that influence. Now, having said all of that, having said all of that, what is it that you can tell us about what the book of Abraham itself, the text itself says about the location of the Ur in which Abraham lived? Oh, wonderful. And that was a great summary. And you're exactly right. This is a very important apologetic issue that has been published by uh, about by not only John, but um, but a variety of BYU scholars. The most recent one was um, the famous uh, young Mormon apologist, Stephen Smoot, um, who, in if I remember correctly, was in 2017 for BYU studies. He he wrote an article um called In the Land of the Chaldeans, the Search for Abraham's Homeland, revisited. So it's it's something that is a, a big deal and we should, you know, I, I I we should explain why definitely. So what it comes down to RFM is that um, the very first verse of the book of Abraham begins with Abraham uh, speaking in the first person. So I'll just go ahead and read it. He says, in the land of the Chaldeans, at the residence of my fathers, I, Abraham, saw that it was needful for me to obtain another place of residence. And that's how the book of Abraham starts. And already it's filled with anachronisms that tell us that it's a 19th century document. Um, the first being simply that Abraham is presented as the one who is composing this account. And we've already shared with the audience that um, that Hebrew wasn't a written language during this time period. Um, there were only a few different languages in the ancient Near East that were, that actually did have in the year in the second millennium that would have even had scripts or cuneiform ways of expressing their their or their oral language, and because of this, there there it's most people were illiterate in the ancient world. 
um, only at the time of that Abraham would have lived, assuming he was a real person, that we're talking, you know, what, one to two percent of the population, they would have been scribes uh, that had devoted a lifetime to this. And I suppose Abraham could have been a scribe, but, you know, there's, where's the evidence for that? So uh, immediately we're kind of as scholars looking at it and thinking, I don't know that some, you know, that he would have had this ability to compose a, a record such as that. But the greater anachronism is indeed his reference to the land of the Chaldeans. And that ultimately derives from Genesis 11, verse 28, which reads, Haran died before his father Terah in the land of his nativity in Ur of the Chaldees. And that's the text that is influencing that opening verse. Now, what was Chaldea? Chaldea was a Semitic speaking country that existed between the late 10th and early 9th and you know, mid 6th centuries BCE, after which the country and its people were absorbed and simply assimilated into Babylonia. And the description that we find there, both in the book of Abraham and in the book of Genesis, or of the Chaldeans, designates Ur with southern Mesopotamia in the time in which the Semitic-speaking Chaldeans controlled that city-state. And the Chaldeans controlled Mesopotamia and specifically Ur, and this is interesting, but the dates are 626 through 539 BCE. And this means that the texts from the Bible that refer to this area as Chaldean ultimately derive from that time period. Does that make sense? Absolutely, it does. Sorry, I had to unmute myself. Um, but no, absolutely, it does. And so it sounds to me like at a minimum, at a minimum, from the very first verse in the book of Abraham, we can already conclude based upon scholarship that this was written sometime after 620 BCE. Precisely. Precisely. It was not, it was not written 2000 BCE because there was no such thing as the land of the Chaldeans, or Ur in the Chaldees, by the way. It does go on to actually refer to that in chapter 2, verse 4, where Abraham says, therefore, I left the land of Ur of the Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan. Yeah. And and let me jump ahead. I know we're going to talk about the documentary hypothesis in greater detail, but just to anticipate that this, that conversation, all of the Genesis references to Ur of the Chaldees derive from what um, scholars refer to as the priestly source, which is abbreviated by the letter P, one of these sources that appears in Genesis. Now, it's difficult for scholars to date this material from the Pentateuch, but an early form of the text was probably composed during the 6th century BCE. And for a variety of reasons, we're able to state this. It has elaborate depictions of priestly ordinances and rituals, um, and so the final form was most likely scholars theorized produced by priestly scribes who were seeking to preserve their understanding of Israelite history and the rituals connected with temple worship when facing the Babylonian destruction. And um, so, you know, it, it, anyway, it, I don't want to get um, too caught up in the documentary hypothesis analysis at this point, but suffice it to say that that this documentary tradition from Genesis P uses the description or of the Chaldees in connection with Abraham, since this would reflect the fact that that source in Genesis was produced during the Neo-Babylonian or Chaldean king time period from 626 to 539. And so it, it, all of the evidence adds up as to 
why the biblical source is calling this this land or the Chaldees and why um, we know where we're talking what we're talking about and we're talking about the town the the original Sumerian city state for southern Mesopotamia and if you know our, our audience will pick up any history book or any general college 101 textbook introduction to the Hebrew Bible without exception they will for that reason link Abraham's home city with that southern Mesopotamian region it is only um as of late, uh, BYU scholars that are continuing an argument that was actually raised originally in the 1970s by Cyrus Gordon, who who taught at Brandeis, where I went to school. Obviously, not when I was there, but um, in you know an, an account in Biblical Archaeology Review in 1977, he made the argument for a northern location that really tied into his um, view that um, Abraham was a caravaneer. And, and all of this has been rejected by contemporary scholars, but because this having a Southern Mesopotamian Ur, which is what the text points to, um, is problematic for the Egyptian influence described in the book of Abraham. Like you said, apologists have really tried to bolster this argument that um, Abraham did not stem from that Southern Mesopotamian region, but he actually came from, from Syria or, you know, up in the North or even up in Turkey, you know. They want to put him up there. Okay, so the timing is problematic for Abraham having written this, and the location is problematic for, well, for Abraham having written this in the sense that all of Abraham chapter 1 depends upon the motif that the Egyptians had influence. It was in Ur of the Chaldees, which by definition, as I understand you, was the southernmost Ur, and yeah. the place where Egypt never had any influence, not in their wildest dreams, not in the vastest expanses of their empire. Yeah. And it's anachronistic, Adam, because if Abraham was a real person really telling this story, he never would have identified the land with a later people that occupied it. And this is recognized as well by, by apologists. It's something they have to deal with. And maybe we should take a minute and just look at but what Stephen Smoot wrote for that BYU Studies article in 2017. Uh, may I share just this little section? Yes, would you please? Okay, so Stephen writes this, quote, Unlike the vague and contradictory details provided in Genesis, the book of Abraham appears to ground Abraham's ore in Syria. The added geographical Oli Shim, Oli Sum, and he, remember we talked about that last time, and cultural details in Egyptian presence at Abraham's homeland in the book of Abraham, making northern location for Ur essentially inescapable. Inescapable? Yes, that's what he says. Essentially inescapable. Yeah, because of the book of Abraham. The book of Abraham, if you're going to take it seriously as history, it's inescapable that it can't be Ur of the Chaldees in, you know, southern Mesopotamia. And then he adds this. He says, for one thing, it's text mentioning of the Chaldeans, as with Genesis, is according to our presently available evidence, probably anachronistic. So he acknowledges it. Hmm. Well, there's, there's no probable about it. It is anachronistic. And then he adds apologetically, perhaps future findings will overturn this. But as things stand at the moment, this remains a problem for the book of Abraham's historicity, although not a fatal one, Stephen adds. He then continues, Latter-day Saints approaching the historicity of the book of Abraham should therefore be cautious and nuanced in how they evaluate the text's historical claims. 
On the other hand, the explicit naming of Oli Shem, Oli Sum in the Book of Abraham, as well as the depiction of the Egyptian presence in the Northern Levant during the time of Abraham, reinforces its historicity. These added details missing from the Genesis narrative about the life of Abraham not only draw our attention to the North as we search for Abraham's homeland, but they also complicate attempts to dismiss the book of Abraham as pseudepigrapha. And there he's actually referring to the argument that I raised apologetically in authoring the Old Testament. Um, But I, I think this is important because here we have this statement where, you know, he's like telling us that, well, yes, this is anachronistic. But it's not fatal because there's evidence for his historicity in terms of Oli Shem and Oli Sum, which we've already talked about, is not really evidence at all. And so ultimately, all we're left with, even by Stephen's own argument here in BYU studies, is that the Book of Abraham opens with an anachronism that shows us that it was composed in the 19th century, or at least certainly not by Abraham himself at minimum. You know, a couple things, uh, listening to this argument as you read it from Stephen Smoot as a lawyer, uh, two things strike me. First thing that strikes me is that it sounds like he's arguing two things at the same time. He's arguing two contradictory things at the same time. He's saying it's anachronistic, but still there's some evidence that supports it, even if we take his assertions about Oli Shem slash Uli Sum as correct. It's problematic, it's anachronistic, but it's not anachronistic, right? So the fact these things that are not anachronistic sort of trump or do away with or make okay the part that is anachronistic. And the second thing I hear him saying is that he's arguing from his conclusion. Okay. Mm -hmm. The conclusion is the book of Abraham obviously says they just can't get away with it. I'm sure the apologists, if there were any way they could get away from this, they would. Egyptian influence in or the Chaldees. It's all over it. It's all over chapter one. It's all over facsimile one. You cannot get away from that. And therefore, it has to be this northwestern Syrian location for Ur, where at some points the Egyptians did have at least a marginal influence at different points in history. That's the conclusion I hear him arguing from. And therefore, all of his evidence is marshaled in such a way as to support that conclusion and make it, well, essentially inescapable. Yes, precisely. I think you've summarized that yeah, very well. And that's just the exact word that he uses. And, you know, we already talked about the incredible influence that Mesopotamia had on those opening chapters of Genesis and even into Exodus and Deuteronomy. And so, of course, the founding father of Israel is going to be proudly linked with this same cultural tradition. Um, ultimately, Abraham had to be from Babylon because placing a city anywhere else, it destroys the entire pattern of influence that we've, we've talked about, not to mention the reversal of the exile, right, for the Jewish community. Mm-hmm. Um, and Abraham came out of Babylon to Israel as ultimately a prefiguration of that same journey that his ancestors would later take. And of course, critical scholars will wonder perhaps if that's composed to reflect that rather than prefiguration. But yeah. So what I'm hearing here, and maybe this is a hopefully concluding part of this and summing up of this part, is that the book of Abraham itself identifies the Ur that it's talking about. And that is Ur of the Chaldees, that would be the Babylonian Ur, that would be the southernmost Ur, that would be the Ur that never had any Egyptian influence. And therefore, the Abraham itself, the book of Abraham itself, ends up 
unfortunately, I suppose from some perspectives, but ends up contradicting the apologist argument for the Northern war. And by the way, it's really important to me that you told me that Cyrus Gordon came up with this in 1977 as a possibility, but this has been largely rejected by scholars since then because of the arguments that you've mentioned. It was a minority view in the first place. Now it's been basically rejected, except for the LDS apologists such as Muelstein and Key who want to keep it alive for obvious reasons. Yeah, and I shouldn't say that they're I mean, the second we say that, you know, they'll, um, the apologists will probably find one or two scholars that are making the same argument. And they, they have, it has um, been presented. It's not just Cyrus Gordon and, and the BYU folks. We need to acknowledge that. But it is such a minority viewpoint and that runs contrary to the evidence that we've discussed that, um, it, yeah, it's it just I don't see any way around it. And going back to what you were saying a second ago, RFM, it, you know, you're right. Ultimately, Stephen Smoot's argument is, okay, he acknowledges this is anarchistic because Abraham wouldn't have called that location or of the Chaldees because the Chaldeans didn't control, they didn't exist as a people at that time period in, uh, in, in control of Mesopotamia. So he acknowledges that, but then he says, but ignore the anachronisms because that there are these um, pieces of evidence that establish its ancient authenticity. But we already discussed in the last podcast why that is a problematic view that historians simply do not take. It's like the Julius Caesar account, if our audience will recall. Um, if we uncovered that and scholars said, oh, this dates to the Roman Empire, well, the, they'd still have to address the fact that there are these anachronisms that point to Shakespeare's time of composition. So even the hits do not negate the evidence of anachronisms for historians. And yet the apologists, that's one of the standard um, ways of operating that we see here expressed in this paragraph. And this is something that you had brought up, I think, in a conversation with me, not in the last interview, but I want you to talk a little bit about, because John Gee, in a recent interview he had, I think it was with Hannah Syriac over at more, uh, Fair Voice or something like that, he talks about people bringing him documents, wanting him to authenticate them, and he cautions the audience that he is not able to authenticate any documents. Now, that sounds a bit of a, like an extreme statement to me, and I'm not an expert in the field, but what he says is you can't authenticate a document. What you can do is you can show if it is not authentic. And you do that by looking for anachronisms in the document. Now, in speaking with you, I think if I'm recalling you correctly, what you don't look for in attempting to see if a document is authentic or what it purports to be, you don't look at the number of hits that it might have or the number of things that do fit into the culture that it purports to derive from, but you look for anachronisms. You look for things that are off and if you find even one anachronism, and I don't want to overstate your position, I'll let you go ahead and uh, say what your position is. But if you find even one anachronism, then that offsets any number of hits as far as its authenticity. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. And it certainly is correct in terms of a book that comes to us um, in the 19th century uh, through the claim of revelation from God. I mean, not to disparage that and, and to say that that is, is impossible to happen. I mean, it, you know, it's, it, it, if that happened, it would be a miracle. And 
by definition, a miracle is the most least likely thing to have transpired. That's what makes it a miracle. Uh, historians are, are trying to identify what is the most likely thing to have occurred in the past based upon evidence. And, and so, although we can say, yeah, of course, miracles happen all of the time and it's possible, but the second we have to rely upon a miracle, we're already um, in, in entering into a framework where we're going to be a bit skeptical. Um, because miracles are the least likely thing to have happened. That's what, it, that's what it means by it's a miracle. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And also, as I'm understanding you, the very fact that the book of Abraham chooses to be written in first person, I, Abraham, that makes it more difficult to get around these anachronisms because it's not presented as somebody writing a story about Abraham, but it's presented as Abraham writing his own story. Yes. And that and that's an, an apologetic argument that John Gee has raised and that even appears, I just saw, I just looked at the recent video that uh, the Pearl of Great Price Cent Central has put out and they draw upon Gee's research for the evidence of historicity for the Book of Abraham. And one of those things is from an, an article that he wrote. Um, oh, goodness, it was for the BYU journal that um, it's changed names over, over the course of the is it the years. Journal of Book of Mormon Studies and Ancient Scripture or something? Yeah, that it, at that time it was called the first it was the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies, and then it became the Journal of Book of Mormon and Other Restoration Scripture, and now I think it's back to Journal of Book of Mormon Studies. Anyway, so it's, it's jumped around, but um, it was back in 2013 uh, that John published an article um, on an ancient Near Eastern king and compared him to Abraham. And, um, and, and then Fair Mormon went on to, to use Gee's article that was published for BYU and said, this is, they said, a quote, bullseye for the book of Abraham to get this right. And ultimately what Gee argued is that he, 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 he calls the book of Abraham an autobiography and compares it to this account of this ruler from the, a, a town in Syria by the name of Idrimi. And Gee asserts that this in his essay that this autobiography um, from Abraham parallels this account from the ancient Near East. And so it shows us that this genre was well known in Abraham's time period and that he drew upon it um, to compose this, that, that genre to compose the narrative, something along those lines. And I'm probably oversimplifying it, but are you familiar with that piece? I am only because you brought it up to me. I actually hadn't even heard of it before. Okay. Believe it or not, I thought my knowledge was somewhat encyclopedic. I'm surprised at the number of times I find out that my knowledge is not, <laughs> right? But yeah. uh, so this is a, a fellow named uh, I-D-R-I-M-I, Dreamy. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I did some research on it when you brought it up, and apparently there was a, uh, a statue carved, I believe, in stone, uh, mm -hmm. And it's a representation of this individual, a dreamy, sitting upon a throne, I guess, or some kind of block. It's all, of course, in stone. And across the face and the entire figure of the statue are inscribed this entire story. So it's like it's a statue, and it's maybe, I don't know, three, four feet high. I, I couldn't really tell, but it's, it's in a museum somewhere. But, a, but they use the statue as like a writing surface to inscribe this person's story. And then that was later translated, and it's what um, 
uh, John Gee has looked at and is finding this to be a parallel to the text of the book of Abraham. Is that right? That's correct. And the first problem with the article is that, um, you know, Gee, uh, if I remember correctly, he he uses um, Egyptian evidence to try to present a time period for Abraham. And he comes up with basically what most scholars would say for the quote unquote patriarchal age. But uh, he links it with the Egyptian Middle Kingdom, which is 2000 to 1800 BCE. Uh, and he does this based upon Egyptian influence in Upper Syria, which, of course, he equates with Abraham's homeland, right? Right. And then he calls this, he says, the Book of Abraham is an autobiography, and it connects with um, this document. And he, he says in the essay that it, it dates from basically the same time period as Abraham. Well, that's already kind of fudging things a bit, RFM, because Adrimi is, is a legitimate ruler, obviously, in Syria in the 15th century. So if we're talking 1460 to 1400 BCE. So that's not just the same time period necessary. We're talking at, you know, five, 600 years, who, who knows some, after the time period that, that even Guy himself would have linked with, um, with Abraham. So that already is a bit problematic, but even the notion of autobiography, um, they're really, and scholars universally recognize this, that there were no autobiographies as such in the time period. It's really a, another anachronism to refer to it as such. Now, there certainly are autobiographical elements. We have the story being told, and Idrimi speaks in, in, in first person, but the colophon or the editorial conclusion to the text itself actually identifies the official scribe who wrote the account. And it's just not an impressive connection as like, like Guy maintains for that reason, for those various reasons. In fact, I, I would even argue that, um, you know, there, there, the, the parallels that he points out between these two quote unquote autobiographical accounts um, are not nearly as strong as the, um, as the parallels between Joseph Smith's history and the book of Abraham. Mm-hmm. So, for example, you know, you've got, um, I, you know, I, Joseph Smith starts off and he's, you know, talks about his father, like Abraham talks about his father. And then, you know, the confusion over religion and traveling from place to place. You know, I mean, these are general connections. And I'm not saying that, therefore, um, Joseph Smith used his own autobiography to compose the book of Abraham. There are differences. But I'm saying that the parallels that between these two ancient Near East, well, sorry, this parallels between the book of Abraham and this ancient Near Eastern document that he identifies in the article can be shown to exist in Joseph Smith's history as well. What is the single most impressive parallel that Guy presents between the two? Is it just that they're both written in first person? Is that as good as it gets or is there more? That's, uh, I mean, he has a whole list of, of connections, of, of thematic connections that he identifies between the accounts. But like I said, you know, they, um, the, the same ones exist with Joseph Smith's own first person account. So it doesn't, it's not, it's just not a, a strong piece of evidence. And, and uh, I, I just, for the reasons I've shared. I take it this person, a dreamy, was not attempted to be sacrificed on an altar? No, no, we don't have that connection. He doesn't talk a lot about astronomy and the stars. Uh, no, not that I recall. It's been a while since I've looked at it. But okay. No, so. Okay. So it sounds to me like pretty general stuff that could appear elsewhere. I mean, if I were to write my autobiography, and I guess I did. In 1993, I actually took the church's advice. Remember, 
Do you remember the good old days when church leaders actually counseled us to keep journals? <laughs> yeah, of course they do. I haven't heard that in years. I know. Well, and and I don't know if it's true, but John DeLynn has, has reported that um, apostles aren't supposed to keep them any longer out of fear that they'll be left to posterity to find, um, you know, problems in church history or something like that. I don't know if that's true, I, but I know John has said that. Right. And uh, I mean, he has sourced it. In other words, he didn't just, uh, I don't think, pull it out of the air. But it makes sense to me based upon the problems that have occurred because of these journals of church leaders. But even the members, we were all, for all of you who are new members or didn't join the church back in the 70s or members in the 80s, yes, frequently, along with the food storage, right, which you don't hear a lot about anymore. It was keep a journal, keep a journal, keep a daily journal. And then they talk about having a personal history. And in 1993, David, I sat down, I collected my journals, and I, I wrote a personal history of myself up to that point, believe it or not. And so the whole reason for this, by the way, I'm sorry to go on this detour, is to get back to this idea that, yeah, I wrote it in first person, and yeah, I moved around from place to place, and so? So does that mean that um, this a dreamy character is somehow a bullseye for my own personal journal? I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, and no one kept, that's the point, no one kept that kind of personal journal or diary in the ancient areas. We have no, uh, you know, evidence for documented, a private record of inner struggles and thoughts and person's destiny. I mean, scholarship has shown that to be the case. So, you know, yeah, you do have some early first-person accounts, and even the Code of Hammurabi that we mentioned, the earliest complete law collection, has, you know, Hammurabi talking about himself in first person, but these are scribal accounts. Um, that may have been composed with the help of the kings to to talk about how wonderful their rule was, but to suggest that therefore that this is some sort of genre that was common to Abraham's time period um, is obviously stretching the, the the evidence far beyond where it, it should take us. Well, we're all the way through Abraham chapter one, verse one. Yeah, <laughs> excellent. Let's this keep is, going. This is like a Hugh Nibley class. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Well, <laughs> honestly, I, I back when uh, Farms produced his his videotapes of his entire what was it his Book of Mormon. Uh, oh yeah, class, yeah. Uh, I got not only that, I also got the transcripts. So it's like four volumes of transcripts of his classes, and I'm reading this because it's you nibbly, man. Oh yeah. I'm, oh yeah. I'm halfway through the freaking tra and I'm not understanding a whole lot, but I'm halfway through the transcripts, and he hasn't even started the Book of Mormon. <laughs> <laughs> I no, I know. I remember I had those, of course, those same books, so the transcripts, and I remember recording them on, uh, you know, I was in Utah when they were being shown on BYU Studies, or, or BYU TV, sorry, and I would record those and watch those and take notes and try to figure out what the hell he was saying, and I most of the time couldn't figure it out. But hopefully, I'm hopefully I'm not leaving the audience in that, that same confusion that sometimes we felt with Nibley. Oh Bless his heart, you know, good man, but, but you know, it was kind of hard to follow. I want to bring up just something here, and I'll do it kind of quick, uh, mainly because what we're doing is we're looking at the text of the book of Abraham, and frankly, I think what we're going to see is that it's not only demonstrably not produced by an individual named Abraham, uh, as it purports to be, but there are all sorts of indications from the text that it's produced by somebody in early 19th century America, and that somebody was probably Joseph Smith mainly because the sources, there's over and over sources that are available to Joseph Smith that get incorporated into this uh, book. But also, there's a lot of things that Joseph Smith is really interested in doctrinally. 
and that we know he was interested in doctrinally that end up getting incorporated into the book of Abraham. And we'll get into that more in chapters four and five when we talk about the creation accounts. And we will get there. Um, there's just so much to talk about, isn't there? But uh, Abraham chapter one, verse two ends up looking for all the world like Joseph Smith incorporated language from a pre-existing patriarchal blessing that his father had given to somebody else at least a year before. And you probably know what I'm talking about. In Abraham chapter 1, verse 2, uh, it says, of course, uh, and finding there was greater happiness and peace and rest for me, I sought for the blessings of the fathers and the right whereunto I should ordain, I should be ordained to administer the same, having been myself a follower of righteousness, desiring also to be one who possessed great knowledge and to be a greater follower of righteousness and to possess a greater knowledge. You remember those lines, of course. Mm-hmm. And to be a father of many nations, a prince of peace, and desire to receive instructions. It is a long verse. And to keep the commandments of God, I became a rightful heir, a high priest, which is really weird that Abraham would be a high priest. I became a rightful heir, a high priest, holding the right belonging to the fathers. So that's his synopsis. But here's this 1834 patriarchal blessing. Now, once again, Abraham chapter 1, verse 2 is going to be translated in 1835, probably around, I don't know, at least after June or July when they actually get the scrolls. But sometime in the latter half of 1835, this blessing comes from 1834. And this is the blessing that's given by Joseph Smith Sr., you know, Joseph Smith's dad, right? Um, Here's the relevant portion of the patriarchal blessing. By the way, I got this from the Fair Mormon article on the subject, because believe it or not, this is a question that some people have. We, this is, <laughs> and actually the question here is, did Joseph Smith use a patriarchal blessing written by Oliver Cowdery to render Abraham chapter one, verse two? Okay. Mm-hmm. Anyway, here's the relevant portion of the blessing. We diligently sought for the right of the fathers and the authority of the holy priesthood and the power to administer the same. For we desired to be followers of righteousness and the possessors of greater knowledge. Mm -hmm. And then it goes on to say, after this, we received the high and holy priesthood. You compare those things together. I have different parts highlighted on my screen between the two. And the similarity in language is so great that even the people at Fair Mormon cave on that and say, yeah, it's obvious that there's a common author here, right? Yeah. They go in a different direction with a different attempt. But this is an 1834 patriarchal blessing. So it's in existence one year before Joseph Smith is translating the book of Abraham, and yet undeniably similar language from the patriarchal blessing shows up in Abraham chapter 1, verse 2, which makes me wonder, how does this happen if Joseph Smith is actually translating an ancient document? Precisely. And it is so much more simple. Not only is it, does it parallel the patriarchal blessing in the time period, but it, that, those parallels are stronger than anything that we could find from the ancient Near East or even the Hebrew Bible. Oh, thank you for bringing that up. Thank you so much, because that's such an important point. Um, And I did this as an apologist, too. I actually, I was blind to this when I was an apologist, I think, until toward the end of my career as an apologist, when I started to become wise to it, which is why I stopped being an apologist. And, (laughs) And that is that you look at this and you go, this influence is so strong, but actually what you do is an apology, you spend a lot of time not looking at it, right? But you look at the things that connect the book of Abraham to the ancient world, like Olishem, right? Mm -hmm. And we've heard about that from uh, the apologists. And those things are so weak 
in comparison to this kind of parallel. This parallel is undeniable, even to the good people at Fair Mormon, who you know, if they possibly thought they could, they would say it's a coincidence. Of, of course. Right? Of course. It's just a coincidence. And yet, when we have these parallels that are stronger for modern production than the ancient parallels or the parallels of ancient authenticity, right? What are we going to do with that if we're actually going to try and be intellectually honest? Well, what I did for a long time, when I don't think I was being intellectually honest, I was being apologetically honest, but I wasn't being intellectually honest, was I basically, I would just sort of ignore these things. I'd whistle past the graveyard. I wouldn't talk about them. I don't know that we teach that. I don't know that we emphasize that. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't talk about it. Vaguely aware of it. It was troubling in the background, right? But I would focus on the Oli Shem and the shiny ha. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. That's what I would focus on. But when you bring them together and look at them and you go, you know, if you got to weigh these things together, the evidence for the modern production of the book of Abraham seems to be an awful lot stronger than the evidence for the ancientness of the book of Abraham. Did I say book of Mormon at one point? Yes, but that, but we were following. You're exactly right. <laughs> okay. Thank you. I mean, yeah. Book of book of Abraham. Mm hmm. And but precisely, again, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Keep going. No, no, no. And I would just say, this is uh, the final thing is uh, once again, this makes it difficult to understand specifically because it's Abraham writing in the first person. So what John Gee sees as a strength with this idea of this ruler, a dreamy mm -hmm. being a first person account. How do I account for the fact that language from a patriarchal blessing given the year, given the year before Joseph Smith translates this ends up finding the language in the book of Abraham, which is not Joseph Smith writing about Abraham, but is presented as Abraham writing about himself. Precisely. Precisely. Yep. That's I, you've summarized that very well. And that is the weakness of, of the approach that they're adopting when they're looking for parallels and ignoring the anachronisms. Well, I, I, I think so too. And I, I, I don't want to take away this whole podcast because I want you, I want to talk about the priesthood next and I want you to talk about the priesthood because priesthood is an overriding concern mm -hmm. in Abraham chapter one can I just bring up one other little textual thing that I discovered of which, course I that was wonderful please which, do and, but this one I don't know I haven't read this before I sort of came up with this myself my apologies if anybody else has written about this but it's in Abraham chapter one verse 15 where there's a very nice play on words and it has to do with the phrase lifted up. Do you have that in front of you? Ask, could you open your scripture? <laughs> chapter one, verse 15. I Let me pull it up here. Okay. So 115. Okay. Yes. And as they lifted up their hands upon me, that they might offer me up and take away my life. Obviously, this is sacrifice time. Behold, I lifted up my voice unto the Lord, my God. And the Lord hearkened and heard, sent his angel and saved me. But there's this nice linguistic parallel of lifted up being used first off as a means of killing Abraham. And he responds by lifting up something else to save him, which is his voice. So I like that. I think that's nice. It's a nice touch. And as they lifted up their hands upon me that they might offer me up and take away my life. Behold, I lifted up my voice unto the Lord, my God. Beautiful. That, that's a beautiful literary observation. Just let me interject. Then I hadn't noticed that. And he put it in there. Whoever the author is put it in there. And I think we've got to give him credit for it. Now, the thing that strikes me about that is, I agree, it's a nice turn of phrase. I've even called it beautiful before. But then I started thinking, wait a second, that sounds kind of familiar. 
And yesterday, when I was reading through the book of Abraham front to back and just really going over it with a fine tooth comb again, I went to the book of Mormon, it took me a little bit of time to find this, okay? But if you look in the book of Mormon, you're going to find a very similar phrase. It's in Helaman chapter 8, verse 14. And I don't have it marked, so I'm actually going to have to find it here. Uh, thumbing through, trying to use my scripture mastery skills, my scripture taste. <laughs> Remember those? Oh, yeah. I was a seminary teacher. Oh, okay, great. <laughs> I got it. I got it. I just got right it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Now, listen to this. 815, is it? Uh, um, yeah. Is it? Uh, no, it's 814. Uh, excuse me. 814. Okay. Yea, and this is talking about Jesus, right? No, this is about Moses. Yea, did Moses. Yea, did he not bear record that the Son of God should come? And as he lifted up the brazen serpent in the wilderness, mm. even so shall he be lifted up who should come. Yeah. So it's an interesting thing. And that's a nice turn yeah. of phrase, too, there. We're talking about Moses lifting up the brazen serpent in the wilderness. You know, people look upon it to be saved from the, the snake bites, right? Even so shall he, Jesus, be lifted up who should come. He'll be lifted up on the cross. So we've got the same phrase being used twice. In a similar way, in Helaman chapter 14, the phrase being lifted up. And then I find it again in Abraham chapter 1, verse 15. And, you know, this is not at all conclusive, but it certainly is interesting that the same phrase gets used twice in a similar way. Yeah. And it is suggestive. It is definitely, I, I've never seen that. No one that I know of has ever pointed that out before. And it's fantastic, RFN, because what, you, what we're showing is that this, you know, it, the, it's suggestive of the fact that the same author of that Book of Mormon text is the author of this account. That's right? exactly how I was going to put it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, very so that's nice. It. Thank you very much. Praise from Caesar. I want you, <laughs> no, really, I want you to talk about the priesthood. Because, oh, and, and before you get to that, gosh, I don't want to run away with this. Uh, but priesthood, we've got the Book of Abraham being written in two parts at two very different times in Joseph Smith's career. We've got Abraham chapter 1 through 2 being written in 1835, regardless of what Dr. Gee and Dr. Muleshine want to say. Mm -hmm. And we've got the balance, the last three chapters, written in or around right at the beginning of 1842. And Joseph Smith has very, very different things that are important to him in 1835 versus what's important to him in 1842. And believe it or not, Abraham reflects those interests and concerns of Joseph Smith. Abraham chapter one talks about priesthood in a very specific way. Once again, I'm not going to run away with this. I'm talking to myself here more than anything else. It's but great. about priesthood and about its lineal descent. Yes. And we find, if you look, we won't read it, but if you look at uh, section 84, of the Doctrine and Covenants, which was given in 1832. So Joseph Smith is even thinking about these things prior to the Book of Abraham. But also, Section 107, which is given in 1835, the same year, and earlier in the year, I believe, I think it's March, that the Book of Abraham is being translated, the first two chapters. He goes on and on about these concerns that are raised in Abraham Chapter 1, about the priesthood, about it going in a lineal descent all the way back to uh, Adam, and that it's a patriarchal kind of priesthood. And by patriarchal, I understand it as meaning it goes down through the patriarchs. It goes down father to son, which is what Abraham's talking about here. And then we'll find when we get there, which we will shortly, uh, in Abraham chapter three through five, the last part in 1842, all of a sudden it's not really concerned about priesthood. It's concerned about things that are interesting to Joseph Smith at that time, uh, mainly being a multiplicity of gods 
mm-hmm. uh, e- eternal nature of God, eternal nature of spirit as well, and organization of matter in the creation instead of being created ex nihilo. Precisely. And what we see happening is um, a greater understanding on Joseph Smith's part of Hebrew that is incorporated into the production of the book of Abraham. Now, that's not to say there isn't an influence, Hebraic influence, um, based upon Joseph Smith's studies in chapter one. And unfortunately, we can't go into it in great details, but you and I have a mutual friend who reached out to both of us, we, we found out, about evidence that he was putting forward that um, the place names that are mentioned in Abraham chapter one reflect Canaanite locations that could be identified from the book of Genesis, especially if someone just had a very rudimentary understanding of Hebrew and was looking at the text and ignoring the vowels and was coming up with the words that, um, that John Gee and others have pointed to be authentic representations of Near Eastern locations. But it turns out, and I can't wait for this, this article to be published um, to, that shows it because from my perspective, the evidence is, is, is really interesting and, and quite compelling as an argument um, that it's a, if the answer is much simpler in terms of, um, of, of Joseph Smith's very rudimentary understanding of Hebrew in 1835 that will be accentuated after his studies um, with Joshua Satius and that advanced understanding, although it never grows to be truly advanced, but advanced from where it was at that stage is reflective in how much Hebraism is incorporated into the um, latter portion of the of the book, right? And that first part, that not published thing with his mutual friend, mm-hmm. uh, has to do specifically with the identification of the four idolatrous gods in oh facsimile one and in Abraham chapter one, where their names are repeated, right? And that those appear to be locations: the god of Mamakra, the god of Libna, the god of Korash, mm-hmm. the god of El Canaan, and so th- these are the the names that John Gee wrote the recent paper that was published in the Interpreter a journal of Latter-day Saint thought and where he, he, he drew connections all over the freaking old world. It seemed like it didn't make any difference. If it's Hittite, great. We'll pull that in. We'll pull this in from over here. It doesn't make any difference. The language, the location, we're looking for hits and damn it, we're going to find some. And he does. And he then ends it by saying that the odds of Joseph Smith getting all four of these, these names of the idolaters, God's correct, which he apparently thinks they did. Uh, are greater than winning the Powerball three weeks in a row. (laughs) And I talked about that in a prior podcast, but what you're talking about is this mutual friend who will remain nameless at this point, and maybe forever, I don't know. Um, I think think we could name him. Oh, no, no, I don't think so. You don't think so? Okay. No, no, I I don't think so. That's why, actually, I wasn't talking too tongue-in-cheek, I don't think, when I said maybe forever. (laughs) Okay, okay, okay. okay. I don't want it. I don't want the cat out of the bag, and it's his research, and I don't want to get too far into it. But No, absolutely not. But what he's suggesting is that there is a much more direct, simplified, and available to Joseph Smith explanation for these four names than the attempts that John Gee makes to link them to all over the ancient world in all sorts of different time periods. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's, that's very exciting stuff. And uh, I didn't mean to break you off there, but yeah. Uh, no. the, it, isn't it crazy? Isn't it crazy that we as Mormons frequently have to avoid putting our name out there, even if we discovered something really, really interesting, right? Sometimes we have concerns about putting our name out there and letting other people know that we might be writing things that are not necessarily consistent with the dominant narrative. 
Yeah. Says Radio oh. Free Mormon. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. Thank you, RFM. It's, yeah, it's, and, and Matthew Gray wrote this great paper. It's in Producing Ancient Scripture, where he talks about the, the use of the Hebrew. We won't go into it a whole lot, but basically, bottom line is this, okay? He goes into a lot of details. Fascinating read. I marked it up. I did all sorts of notes. I won't get into those details right now. But basically, he says, Joseph Smith, first off, he, he studies Hebrew, first from textbooks at the end of 1835, and then from Joshua Satius at the beginning of 1830. Six with the School of the Prophets. When they finally hire him, he comes out, he teaches them. Joseph Smith, he's his uh, best student, right? Uh, and that starts in February of 1836. But what um, Matthew Gray does is he looks at the Book of Abraham, he looks at the Hebrew, and he looks at the names, the unusual names in, in the Book of Abraham, and he finds several Hebrew names in the Book of Abraham. And they're not just Hebrew names, it's also given with a translation. So obviously, whoever wrote this knew the Hebrew, knew the translation into English, and demonstrates that in the text of the book of Abraham. Um, it not only is it Hebrew, it is a uh, or an idiosyncratic transliteration method of Hebrew that uh, was taught by Joshua Satius, and we know mm -hmm. because we have the textbooks that he wrote, right? So yep. we know how he transliterated things from Hebrew into English. The book of Abraham follows that same transliteration. And so finally, and this was a very important part that he brought up, Abraham chapter 1 and chapter 2 have no Hebrew words in it from mm -hmm. Joshua Satius. They appear exclusively in the material that was produced after Joseph Smith learned Hebrew from Joshua Satius. So then it shows up in chapters three, four, and five. It also shows up in facsimile one and two, which were produced at the end of the translation process for those explanations probably being given in 1842 as well. And so basically his research supports the idea that, yeah, Brian Hauglid and Dan Vogel are correct. John Gee and um, Carrie Mulesine are incorrect on the idea that they want to say that all of the book of Abraham was translated in 1835 prior to studying Hebrew with Joshua Satius. If that were true, why is it that these Joshua Satius terms for Hebrew show up in the book of Abraham when Joseph Smith could not have learned those until after studying with Joshua Satius in 1836? So that's one main point that, jo that Matthew Gray makes in his paper. And I will say another point, if Joseph Smith isn't writing this, I mean, why is it showing up at all in the book of Abraham, which once again is a first person? account. Why is this first person autobiography, right, John Gee? It's an autobiography, just like a dreamy. It's a bullseye, right? Why is Abraham written 1800, 2000 years BCE, presenting Hebrew words in it with their English transliteration at all? Yeah. When Hebrew wasn't a written language at the time. Wasn't even a written language at the time. Yeah. But of course, why, why would God be telling Joseph Smith in the vision in chapter three about, you know, Kokob, you know, that star yeah. or Kokalbiam, which mm -hmm. is stars. It's the plural, right? And those are actual Hebrew terms. And why is God doing that to Joseph? Oh, excuse me. I said to Joseph, why is God telling that to Abraham? Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, it's like if I'm God and I'm giving a revelation to you, David, and I'm saying, you see those stars up in the sky? They're called stars. 
you see those, uh, <laughs> you see that sun <laughs> up in the sky? It's called a sun. In other words, if you're giving it to a Hebrew guy, you're obviously giving it in Hebrew. So why are you telling me the Hebrew word for it? I mean, yeah. what point does that make? What yeah. it is, is Joseph Smith is, uh, I, I don't know if showing off is the correct word, but he's certainly uh, brandishing or flourishing or exhibiting. Maybe that's a nice neutral word. He's exhibiting his knowledge, his understanding, his learning from Joshua Satius of Hebrew words in the last chapters of the book of Abraham. It doesn't seem to make any sense for it to be there otherwise, except for as an indicator that Joseph Smith is the author. And that is the ultimate, that's a very strong piece of evidence that Joseph Smith, in, indeed, precisely you said, is composing this. And it reflects his experiences that he's having and his education that he's acquiring during the time period, which is why, of course, that John and Carrie don't want that to, um, you know, to be the case. But the evidence is what it is. And I can't remember where I was going to go with this, but it was, um, I, I, I can't remember. Well, maybe oh, oh I remember. Sorry, I do. I do. Oh, we need to add this in, RFM. And that is that, um, you know, because of the anachronisms and the things that we're identifying, we're talking about, um, some Mormon apologists have backed away from the idea that this is what it purports to be, namely a first-person autobiographical account composed by Abraham, and um, that it actually is a a later Hellenized document, a Jewish Hellenized document um, produced in Egypt um, where, you know, a Jewish uh, scribe is drawing upon Abraham traditions and, um, and incorporating that in, in together with the, uh, with the Egyptian characters and things like that, that appear in the, in the facsimiles. And they've argued that perhaps the text is ancient, but it just doesn't stretch all the way back to Abraham's time period. Um, to me, that is, and I, I just think that that's just, I, obviously it's an argument that they're now driving to try and, and, and preserve some ancient authenticity to the text as opposed to Joseph Smith as author. Um, that's a problematic way of looking at it. I think even religiously, because then what it would be, would be like a pseudepigraphic uh, text, like the Apocalypse of Abraham or the Ascension of Isaiah or something like that that was composed years later by some anonymous Jewish scribe. And why would that be scripture to the Latter-day Saints? Um, what makes it scripture is the fact that it comes authoritatively through Joseph Smith. So why not just acknowledge the evidence and say he, he's the author? Right. And I know that there's this Jewish redactor theory, which I think is the technical term for what you're talking about. Um, and I see it as the same way. It seems to be a violation of Occam's razor. Mm -hmm. That principle, which is frequently said that the simplest explanation is usually the most true. I'm not sure that's exactly what Occam's razor talks about. I think that really what it's talking about is that if you've got an explanation for something and then evidence comes forward and you have to do all these modifications that become more and more elaborate to explain the evidence in the way that you want to conclude that it means that that is a violation of Occam's razor. And I've lived long enough, 60 years old, been through enough life experience. I get a sense for when that happens, right? Yeah. You get a sense for when this happens, you start making up all these explanations in order to support your theory that there's got to be a way to preserve that the authenticity, the historicity of 
the book of Abraham. And since therefore the evidence is budding so hard up against it being actually written by a guy named Abraham because of these anachronisms that we've been talking about, that we're going to put it down into maybe 2000 years later. And maybe there's this Jewish scribe, this Jewish redactor who's in Egypt because of course he's in Egypt because he's getting it written on scrolls and buried with a mummy because we know all mummies get buried with, you know, stories about the life of Abraham. <laughs> yeah. Because it was very meaningful to these mummies. That was yeah. a Jewish mummy. I don't know if they checked to see if he was circumcised, but I'm betting yes. So anyway, um, we, we get to this point about the Jewish redactor, and I guess I finally get to the point where I, where I actually think, um, you know, you only need one redactor in this whole situation. I think there is a redactor present, but I don't think it's a hypothesized Jewish redactor. I think it's Joseph Smith. Of course it is. Of course it is. And we see that and, and not only through the Hebrew, as you've talked about, and that reflects his um, training as, as it happens historically, but we see it through, even in chapter one, returning to this concept of, of priesthood um, that reflects really a 19th century religious worldview. Would you talk about that with uh, the audience right now? Because you had mentioned this earlier uh, with me in a phone conversation, or maybe it was text. Absolutely fascinating to me because I think what you've identified is concerns that the author in Abraham one has about the priesthood that reflect early 19th century American concerns that likely Joseph Smith would have shared. Yes. And this is super important. I hope I can lay this out well and just speaking it through. Let's give it a shot. But, you know, ultimately, like, um, like, like many 19th century Americans, Joseph Smith takes the Bible very seriously. We know this as a, as a history text. And he believed it contained, therefore, a history of the cosmos, the earth, and human origins. And that's very common for his time period. And so as a result, people in Joseph Smith's day believed that all humans were descendants of one of Noah's three sons. Remember, he gets off the ark and he has Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And the, this presented a problem for Americans who embraced this traditional biblical 19th century perspective when it came to the indigenous population of America. And this would ultimately connect to Book of Mormon origins, right? It, one of the reasons that Joseph Smith creates the Book of Mormon is because of this 19th century biblical worldview that he links the indigenous people of America with the Bible's history of humanity. And the Book of Mormon, therefore, presents this 19th century perspective that darker skin, which the indigenous population had, as opposed to the Europeans that were coming over here as colonists, um, derives from a divine curse for displeasing God. It's terrible stuff. It's very racist, obviously. But um, Mormon apologists, from my perspective, RFM, they do considerable damage to the Book of Mormon text. And I promise we're going to link this back with the Book of Abraham. But they do considerable damage to the text and, and our history as Mormons when they seek to cover this fact up to, to match contemporary perspectives regarding race. So a lot of Book of Mormon apologists will talk about the Book of Abraham and they'll be like, no, the curse is not, you know, dark skin isn't really dark skin. It's a metaphor and things like that. But really, it's there. And that racism is there because it reflects this idea that we have to take the indigenous population and link them into the Bible narrative because we don't know where they came from otherwise. And if you think like Joseph Smith does that all humans trace from the Noah's descendancy, then 
you have to come up with a story of how they got to America and how their skin was changed. And that's what happens in the Book of Mormon. And we see, in essence, a very similar, if not the same, I suppose, thing happening in terms of the Book of Abraham. And that's why I prefaced it that way. Um, so let's look at the text, I guess. Let's look at, so Abraham, if I'm turning, I'm going to turn to chapter one is where we're still at. I'm going to look at verses specifically 21 through 23. I'll go ahead and read those. Now, this king of Egypt was a descendant from the loins of Ham. Okay. Remember son of Noah and was a partaker of the blood of the Canaanites. So Joseph Smith wants to link Ham, Noah's son with the blood of the Canaanites. And then we read this from this descendant descent sprang all the Egyptians. So he wants to link not only the Canaanites, but the Egyptians with Ham. And thus the blood of the Canaanites was preserved in the land, the land of Egypt being first discovered by a woman who was the daughter of Ham and the daughter of Egyptus. So we're linking Ham and Egyptus, even in the names and the wordplay there, which in the Chaldean signifies Egypt, which signifies that which is forbidden. Okay. Um, well, Chaldean doesn't signify that which is forbidden. It's actually, they're actually a people. And actually the word, it, this is interesting, and it's just as a side note, RFM, but Chaldean, the word is, they were so linked with astronomy um, in the ancient world that that word is actually adopted both in Greek and in Aramaic, the Semitic language that Jesus will speak for astronomer. So if you want to, so, you know, there's a, and Joseph Smith would have been aware of maybe not that information specifically, but the commentaries that he's drawing upon certainly are aware of these traditions and openly talk about um, the link between the Chaldeans and astronomy, which is, of course, the focus of chapter three in the book of Abraham. Anyway, I digress. That's just a, that's a, that's a side note, but returning then to the text, um, Note that in, in, in Abraham chapter one, Joseph Smith is making a direct link between the Egyptians and the Canaanites. And that's going to reflect a, a significant 19th century perspective that stems from Joseph Smith and his contemporaries' understanding of the Bible. Um, so many people from Joseph Smith's time period believed that, as I said, all humanity ultimately comes from one of those three sons that are talked about in Genesis. And according to this mindset, those of African ancestry who had darker skin than Europeans came from this same ancestry because all humans do. But of course their, their pigmentation required an explanation that the biblical account omits because the Bible's not addressing this, but people that think that all humans, including those with darker pigmentation come from these three groups, they have to fit it in somehow. And so in terms of Noah and his three sons, the book of Genesis contains a story regarding that's very famous to our listeners regarding Ham's sexual depravity. Remember, um, it's the account where he looks up upon um, uh, his father Noah's drunken, naked body. And so um, because of Ham's action, Noah is going to curse Canaan, Ham's son. It makes no sense because Canaan didn't do anything. Um, but he curses the son because of the father's action. And therefore, the and he becomes the ancestral father of the Canaanite people in Genesis. And that's in chapter 9. You have that famous verse where Noah says, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be unto his brethren. Now, the 
authors of the biblical account are doing this because they want to present the Canaanites as sexual deviants. I mean, that happens over and over again, right? You have the story of the ancestral story of, um, you know, that is, that is told through Lot's daughters and they are going to be the, um, through their incestuous relationship with their father, Lot, um, they're going to create uh, the Moabites and the Ammonites and these enemies and Canaanite enemies of Israel. So they're always depicted in, in, really a sexual deviance. And that's what the story of strange story is doing here. Just despite the fact that, you know, Nibley and others went with it with, you know, garments and drew upon the book of Jasher and things like that. It's, it's really clear what's happening here, but white Americans take that verse Genesis, Genesis nine 25, where it says cursed be Canaan. He's going to be a servant or a slave. White Americans during Joseph Smith's day used this passage to justify the practice of African slavery in this country. A tragic history. And African people were thought to have been the recipients of this Canaanite curse and therefore meant to be slaves according to divine mandate. That is not in the Bible, but that is the way that racist Americans and Joseph Smith date were using this, this passage to justify this practice. So returning to the book of Abraham, we see this effort in chapter one to fill in the missing data linking ancient Egypt with Canaanite ancestry and the cursed blood. So during Joseph Smith's day, um, Eurocentric anthropologists used this term that, that people will still encounter, Hamites, for North African people. And then beginning in the 19th century, scholars typically classified the Hamitic race as a subgroup of the Caucasian race alongside the Aryan race and the Semitic people. I know this is starting to get a little bit complicated, but bear with me. I think I can bring it home. This 19th century, really, let's call it as it is, white supremacist view grouped the non-Semitic populations native to North Africa and the Horn of Africa, including the ancient Egyptians. It linked them all together as descendants of Ham from the Bible. And this constituted a perspective that Americans inherited from Jews and Christians during, ultimately during the Middle Ages. Um, when um, Jews and Christians started to consider Ham to be the ancestor of all Africans. And Noah's curse on Canaan in Genesis began to be interpreted as having caused visible racial characteristics in all of Ham's offspring, most notably, of course, black skin. Now, something's going to change, however, by the time we get to Joseph Smith. And this is what I'm trying to get to that's going to be reflected in chapter one. And what that change is going to be is ultimately Napoleon is going to invade Egypt in 1798. And that invasion is going to draw Western European attention to the really impressive achievements of ancient Egypt, like the Sphinx and the pyramids and things like that, and create kind of this wonderland approach to Egypt as something that is in, in incredibly impressive. And so Europeans, these had to reconcile their, it, let's, let's call it their, their racist belief that Africans were inferior or cursed with what is coming out of Egypt, which is just blowing their minds, right? And so during Joseph Smith's era, a revised Hamitic theory had become very popular, and the Hamitic race was thought to be superior to or more advanced than the Negroid population of sub-Saharan Africa. And so 
I hope I have explained that in, in a way that people can follow, but this historical context allows us to see what Joseph Smith was doing with the book of Abraham because of his need to provide an explanation for human origins that reflects his view that, that the story of Noah and his sons is all history. Um, he's, he needs to, in the production of this account, link the Canaanites, who are cursed in Genesis, with Egyptians to explain the biblical curse of slavery and dark skin. But Joseph Smith also needs to deal with the fact that the Egyptians produced really impressive achievements uh, that were respected by 19th century Americans in Joseph Smith's world. And um, so you'll see this, I believe, in Abraham chapter 1, verse 21, where you see this, he writes, this king of Egypt was a descendant from the loins of Ham and was a partaker of the blood of the Canaanites by birth. So in other words, therefore, he's going to be cursed to the priesthood and he's going to have dark skin. So the Egyptian king in Joseph Smith's account is a descendant of Ham. He preserves these things and he's a partaker of the blood of the Canaanites, but he's he's also therefore going to be identified as someone who is positive and who actually is able to do something that is quite impressive. So what does the book of Abraham do? Um, he says that Egypt was discovered by a woman who was the daughter of Ham and the daughter of Egyptus. She settled it with her sons and from this ham from ham sprang that race which preserved the curse in the land of priesthood and dark skin and according to the story as we continue on the first government of egypt was established by pharaoh who was a righteous man according to the account who sought to imitate and this is the language that is used there in verses 26 through 27 he's going to imitate that order established by the fathers in the first generations, in the days of the first patriarchal reign, even in the reign of Adam, and also of Noah, his father, who blessed him with the blessings of the earth and with the blessings of wisdom, but cursed him as pertaining to the priesthood. And that's in verse, I'm reading from verses 25 and 26. So to bring this all together, RFM, I know this has been a little, perhaps complicated, I hope people have been able to follow, but ultimately what we see is that as a man of African ancestry, Pharaoh is going to be black, and he therefore preserved the lineage by which he could not have the right of the priesthood. Yet, because he was, he was righteous and imitated, he doesn't really have it, but he imitates the government and the priesthood of Noah, Pharaoh, this black man, was able to create a civilization that produced these really impressive achievements that are respected by Joseph Smith and his contemporaries. Am I explaining this okay? I'm following you 100%. Okay, good. All right, I'll, I'll, let me bring it home then. I think the, the book of, so the book of Abraham narrative is going to reflect the 19th century view of the Hamitic race theory and fill in, which in the gaps missing from the Bible as interpreted by Joseph Smith and many of his contemporaries. And in so doing provide an, a, an origin for the curse that will um, tragically um, be used by Mormon leaders from from that time forward to um, to deny priesthood blessings and temple access to those of African ancestry, and I feel very passionate about it. And I'm not just trying to throw this out there to say, "Oh, this is awful and it's racist." It is awful and it is racist, and and therefore it should not be swept under the proverbial apologetic rug. 
I, I just strongly believe this RFM that, that, that we should never simply dismiss these facts and this history through word plays and, and things like that, that apologists are want to do. Instead, we need to identify them and learn from them and, and see how they've affected Mormon culture and understanding and the racism that still, unfortunately, to some extent, um, you know, plagues our community. Anyway, I, I, that, that, I, I hope I laid that out. I know it's a little bit complicated, but hopefully our listeners will be able to follow that. Well, I think that what you've been able to do through this observation, by the way, had you written about this before, David? I haven't. I haven't written. I need it. I, I, I mentioned I'm going to put this, uh, I, I'm, I'm putting notes together for a book. I really do want to do an academic book on the book of Abraham that delves into this type of stuff that we're looking at today. Okay. Well, I want you to include uh, obviously this, but also include that thing from uh, chapter one, verse 15 about lifted up because I'm dying to see a footnote in an academic piece <laughs> to Radio Free Mormon. I'm really that, looking forward to that. It's going to happen, brother. <laughs> <laughs> but really, what you've done, I think, is you are now focusing more and more when we're talking about a time stamp on mm-hmm. the production of the Book of Abraham. We've gone from the point of, well, it couldn't have been written 2000 BCE when Abraham actually lived according to the Bible. It was at least 1000 BCE because Hebrew didn't exist until then. Then we're talking about the Babylonian captivity in the uh, well, from 586 to what, around 70 more years or so during that time period, uh, because of the motif of Abraham coming out of Babylon and into Canaan, reversing the captivity motif that actually did historically happen. And now, so we, we're, we're focusing, focusing, focusing away from the time period of 2000 BCE when the book of Abraham purports to have been written, but now we're really, really getting focused. We're saying it could have been written before this time or before this time, but now we're coming down to talking about identifiers in the text that you've talked about that more and more really seem to indicate that this was written by somebody in Joseph Smith's culture context that has these beliefs that you've described about the curse of the Canaanites and the slavery and also, also, having to reconcile it with the magnificence that has just been discovered or at least revealed to uh, the European and American world through Napoleon's uh, conquest or invasion or whatever it was, but of Egypt and their, uh, the pyramids, the Sphinx, everything. So that's nine, uh, excuse me, 19, 1798, I think you said. Mm-hmm. So basically this is happening sometime after 1798 and probably in Europe or America that this is being written. Yeah. For these very reasons. And it, and I, and I, I, it's so important that we, we recognize it and identify it and embrace that it is there and that it's problematic because of the effect that it's going to have on our community. I mean, just recently RFM, you know, and I don't want to get too much into politics, obviously, but right here now in the United States, we're facing a lot of racial tension and turmoil. And um, an extended family member linked to a very conservative, politically conservative Mormon website that drew upon a talk from the 1960s from Ezra Taft Benson, where he is talking about the problems of, um, you know, not paying attention to the Constitution and uh, of the, the points of riots and socialism and things like that. You know, things that that a conservative Latter-day Saint would identify with. But of course, in that talk, Elder Benson at the time is going to do what he did 
and talk about the civil rights movement and connect it with communism. And he's going to um, also talk about the fact that people of African ancestry are cursed and that they, you know, you know, they can't have the priesthood because they are cursed people and these things that we know exist. And so, you know, this extended family member was not drawing upon it for those reasons. Um, this person was drawing upon it because of the attack on socialism and communism and things that are important to conservative Latter-day Saints today politically. But in the process, you cannot escape the fact that there are some really horrible racist things that are being said in that document by Ezra Taft Benson um, that uh, the church has now officially disavowed. And so when we ignore where Ezra Taft Benson is drawing his information from historically and even scripturally from this book of Abraham, then we're, we're missing something that is really important and that is tragic and that is affected negatively a, a whole group of our brothers and sisters that uh, we, we need to, to recognize and, and be sensitive towards at minimum, if not seek to try and rectify. I think that's a really, really good point you make. It also reminds me of the fact that the church made a decision, a calculated decision, to make sure that they have no general conference addresses prior to 1970 available on their official website. Mm, I wasn't aware of that. That's as far back as it goes. If you want to look up general conferences on the church website, it you will sense. not get into the 1960s. And I've long thought that Ezra Taft Benson might be a major reason for that. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and when I saw that, I was just, I'm like, this is 2020. Even if you like the political stuff, he's saying we should not be promoting these views and we should understand how problematic they are and were and always were and, and where it stems from. So that we can we can make it we can we can improve as a people. Well, I think that uh, what you're illustrating here is the problem that the church policy uh, promotes. Sorry, too many P's. I sound like I'm giving a general conference address, uh, <laughs> but uh, sometimes it happens accidentally. Um, but this is the problem that's created when you deal with the past by deciding you're just going to ignore it. Mm -hmm. and hope it goes away. We're not going to have these available on the church website. We're not going to repeat these. So therefore, we just hope they go away. We're not going to talk about them. We're not going to deal with them directly. We're just going to let them go away because guess what? They still exist out there. And if yeah. you don't deal with them, there are people who are going to find them and are going to think this represents, well, this is the apostle for crying out loud. He later becomes the president of the church. This is legitimate. And people are led, I think, knowingly, intelligently, uh, it's not unreasonable for them to think this is being said in general conference. The church has not come out against it in general conference, and therefore this probably still represents the thought of and the beliefs of the church today. Precisely. And so I would argue that um, properly contextualizing the Book of Abraham as a 19th century document that contains these 19th century racist views um, is therefore religiously and spiritually helpful to a, a Mormon community. It should be at least um, because then they're able to identify and say, Oh, I see why that's there. And that it is not a reflection of historical reality, let alone of, of spiritual reality. And what, and, and, and that doesn't mean they have to dismiss the entire book of Abraham or the book of Mormon or, or anything like that. Um, you know, there are, 
I, just to give an uh, to give an example of this, okay, I I uh, once gave a presentation to a group of high school students on um, the uh, on on Islam, and I began the presentation and I drew these passages from the Bible where God is telling the Israelites to go into Canaan and massacre every man, woman, and child. Do not leave, let let an infant survive because they're non-believers, they're Canaanites, even massacre all of the um, animals in the community, right? These horrific statements of uh, the ban that uh, is mandated in, in Joshua and other locations of the Hebrew Bible. And I took some of these passages, and you know what I did, RFM? I changed the name of God from the Lord to Allah. And I read these, and I said, and I asked, the, I asked these teenagers, I said, what are your feelings about uh, about these about this text and the religion that would produce it? I mean, this was a terrible thing to do, I guess, but I did it anyway, right? It's a dirty I, trick. It's a dirty trick, right? But I I, my, I had a very important point. I wasn't trying to disparage the Bible; just the opposite, you know. And I remember one of these um, one of these uh, teenagers. She raised her hand and she said, um, "I come from a Christian background, and according to my belief, God would never." behave in such a manner. And, you know, and it was, I wasn't trying for a gotcha moment, but it, it ended up being that. I guess I kind of was in a way, but I had a reason for it. And then I revealed that these verses actually stem from the Bible. Here's what I did. Mm-hmm. My point was, is that if one turns to the Quran, you can find parts of it that are very violent and, and quite awful. And there are other parts of the Quran that are very beautiful and that inspire the Muslim community. And so it would be wrong for a religious group, like a, a Christian, for example, to judge the Quran or judge Muslims based upon the worst that is found in their community or in their sacred text. Because, you know, most Muslims have a way of reading those violent passages in such a way that does not reflect their desire. that doesn't make them violent towards non-believers, just as Jews and Christians are able to do with the Bible. And that was my point. Um, we shouldn't judge the, an entire community by the worst of what is in there. And I go back to the book of Abraham. That is a terrible thing that is in there and identify it, run with it, rectify it, you know, make a difference in the world. Um, and that doesn't mean you have to reject the whole thing. At least I wouldn't think so. Can I say a couple things about priesthood here in Abraham? And then I'm only going to take maybe five minutes most. I will keep myself to that. So we can spend the rest of the three hours on the documentary hypothesis as it relates to Abraham chapter four and five. Sure. Of course. There's so much to talk about. We're going to leave a lot on the field here, but here we go. Or on the cutting room floor, I think I should say, but it is interesting. This idea about the curse of the priesthood being lineal in Abraham, because First off, we as Mormons, we come to the table on priesthood ordination from a very definite perspective, and it is the perspective that has been developed and latched onto and perpetuated in the church, which is that a guy with a priesthood gives a priesthood to another guy with, with the, by the laying on of hands, right? Mm-hmm. That's the only way it's done now in the LDS church. But in the book of Abraham and also in the early church and even in the not-so-early church, um, there's a competing method that's being talked about. And what Abraham's talking about is not, hey, I had to go find a guy who had the priesthood so he could give it to me, right? What he's talking about is he's searching for the right to the priesthood, which he has, and he has it by lineal descent. Mm -hmm. It is the right of the fathers 
the priesthood of the fathers. That's how he receives it. It's already his by right. And I'm not going to go and read all the scriptures because we don't have time for that right now. But it's interesting. He has it by right, and yet he doesn't have it at the beginning of the book of Abraham. And something happens, which is not really specified as to how it, he receives it or it becomes activated within him because he already has it by right. Mm-hmm. And now he becomes a holder of the priesthood, right? And so now he has this priesthood, but it is very much a lineal priesthood. It is the patriarchal priesthood that Joseph Smith taught. It comes down through the patriarchs. And of course, in Joseph Smith's day, and by the way, let me complete that thought. It stands in contrast to a lineal descent of priesthood versus a lineal descent of the curse of the priesthood. If you mm. see what I mean, there's yes. actually a balancing there in the context. It makes sense. It may be something that we don't appreciate with our, with our sensibilities today as to how that's talked about through the blacks and through ham and through Canaan and all that stuff. Right. But there is a balance. It makes sense within the context. And Joseph Smith goes on and he creates a church where now, yeah, people who do have the priesthood are required to give the priesthood to other people. That's how you get the priesthood. And yet there's a tension within the church because Joseph Smith also perpetuates this idea of a lineal priesthood. And of course that goes through the patriarchs of the church from his dad, who's the first patriarch. He was called and set apart in December of 1833, if memory serves. And then his dad dies from malaria in the swamps in Nauvoo. And now who becomes the next patriarch? Well, that is the next son who's not Joseph. Uh, That's Hiram. Hiram. Hiram becomes the patriarch. And now we get the series of patriarchs, which go all the way down, lineal from father to son, all the way down until Eldred G. Smith, who many listeners to this program may not know about because he was the last patriarch in the church. And he wasn't the last, and by the way, this is in the 1970s. When I joined the church, if you you looked up the uh, conference edition of the Enzyme, right, uh, you would have the the centerfold with all the the general authorities in it. And you have it just like it is today, probably without the women, but you'd have it just like it is today. And over to the side, you would have a picture of the patriarch of the church because he was uh, a general authority and it was Eldred G. Smith. But we stopped having patriarchs in the church, not because Eldred G. Smith didn't have any male descendants that he could pass it on to, right? Or that would have it by right, correct? He'd have it by right. But because the apostles decided that they were going to discontinue that office. So they just didn't call anybody. They put him on emeritus status. He lived to be at quite an old age. Uh, but they put him on emeritus status, and then they just let him go gently into that good night. And that's how they got rid of, finally, the patriarchal priesthood or priesthood by lineal descent in the church. So there's always been this tension between the two because the people who are in power want to be able to control who it is who gets the priesthood. They get to decide who gets the priesthood and who doesn't, who gets called to certain positions and who don't. But the lineal priesthood is this tension to that where you don't get to choose that, you apostles, because that's determined by something that's beyond your control, i.e., who's your daddy, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so uh, ultimately, the apostles, those who were in that form of priesthood, obtained sufficient power and authority that they did away with the other form of priesthood so that their power was complete in the church as to who gets the callings and who doesn't. Now, having said all of that, we still have vestiges of it in our church. Yes, of course. And I think, but, but they're theoretical now, right? They're theoretical. By the way, let me go back to this blacks and the priesthood thing, right? Because that happens all the way up to 1978. I think it was 77 or so, no, maybe it was 79 that the Elder G. Smith was put on uh, his emeritus status. 
But we have come to the point in the church where now we are basically entirely, except for that patriarchal, you know, that patriarch of the church thing. We're completely, you know, you go through your interviews, you get baptized, you're good for long enough. And if you're a guy, then you get the priesthood from somebody else who has it. And you're authorized to get it by somebody who has the keys to do that. It's not lineal. But we still got this funny thing going on where we're a church that chooses people based upon righteousness and the decisions they make and their gender to get the priesthood right. But along with that, we're still maintaining this idea that blacks are cursed from the priesthood because of their lineal descent, not because of any individual choice that they've made. Mm -hmm. So they finally got rid of that in 1978. But this idea that um, there's still a lineal component and a right to priesthood yeah. is contained in, I think it's section 106. It might be 84 of the Doctrine and Covenants, and it has to do with the office of a bishop. bishop. Mm-hmm. Yep. And what does that say? Just from memory. <laughs> you know, that if, in essence, right, that uh, if you are a, a literal descendant of Aaron, you have the right to step up and become the bishop of the ward. Right. right. And actually... I mean, it might have even been the bishop of the church at the time it was written. Okay. There's some, there's some, yeah. no, it, it's not for sure. But yeah, there was like, it was a bishop of the church at the time and it could be a bishop of a ward. But yeah, that's the idea. If you are a literal descendant of Aaron, mm-hmm. then you have the right by your lineage to yeah. be a bishop because you hold that ironic priesthood in those uh, keys, I guess, by right of your lineage. Yeah. But that's, of course, just a theory. I am aware of no time in LDS history when anybody has come forward and claimed that, <laughs> successfully claimed it's their own. Well, and, and can you imagine, like, today? And that goes to the point. It would be looked upon as, as just ludicrous. And you, it, people would be like, what in the world are you talking about? And yet this concept of lineal right or non-right to the priesthood is central to not only early Mormon theology, but it stems ultimately from... You know, not I don't know that it stems from, but it's certainly connected with this first chapter of the book of Abraham. Right. So that was what I want to talk about priesthood. I'm not sure I was successful at limiting myself to the five minutes. I apologize. Oh, it was super good. It was really good. Well, thank you. So now, by the way, there we're actually just going to sort of skip chapter three, and it's so wonderful. Everything's in chapter three. I want to spend some time talking about it. It won't be today. We'll see if we can get you back for number three. We'll see if we can actually total the number of hours with you to exceed that of the hours with Robert Rittner. I don't know if that's going to happen, but I do want to get in today. The documentary hypothesis as it relates to Abraham 4 and 5, because that's fascinating to me and once again indicates the time of the creation of this as not being Abraham by any stretch of the imagination. Excellent, because this is super important, as is the idea. Well, it also connects with, with, and I'll show this ultimately with um, Abraham chapter 2 as well. Um, But... I, I suppose, RFM, the best way to really break this down, we've already introduced somewhat superficially our, our listening audience to the concept of the documentary hypothesis in the in the previous uh, podcast and, and so forth. But I guess the best way to illustrate this is to just have our audience think about the opening chapters of Genesis. Um, the Bible actually begins with two creation stories. Uh, the first account is contained in Genesis chapter 1. And if we think about that account, the, the narrative appears, uh, well, it's just neatly organized into three days of preparation for creation, followed by three days of actual formation of, of, of the world. 
And each day is concluded with the formulaic expression, remember, and there was X. So that by the seventh day, all creation exists in its proper sphere and, and then God is going to rest. And then quite dramatically, as you're reading along, everything changes. You get to Genesis 2 and all of a sudden it, it, it's as if everything created no longer exists. Creation simply starts all over again right? So Genesis chapter one, verse one begins in the King James version of the Bible. And, you know, in the beginning was the word, no, sorry, I'm quoting John. I'm still a little, I'm waking up. Um, That's okay. John was quoting Genesis. Exactly. In the beginning, it's easier to do in Hebrew. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Okay. Um, And then that is concluded in Genesis chapter two, verse four, but the first half of it, and scholars will call that a. So it will say in the King James, and again, I'm just kind of from memory, but these are the these are the days when heaven and earth were created by God. And notice how it's a summary of the first verse. And what that does is create a very tight um, literary structure and a natural sense of closure for the account. It's the same way we conclude argumentative essays today, where you state the thesis in the opening paragraph and then conclude and restate it in the final paragraph, because it's a very natural way to create closure. And that happens in the Hebrew Bible. And then the second account begins, and we have a new name that is being used for God. It is just simply God, or the translation of the Hebrew word Elohim in Genesis 1. Yet in Genesis chapter 2, we have the Lord, all in caps, mentioned, which is a translation of the Hebrew proper noun Yahweh, or as we render it through Germanic influence, Jehovah. So two different names of God and two different accounts. And in some ways, they, um, they're they duplicate. Um, each story, the one in Genesis 1 and the one in Genesis 2, um, have a story about the creation of animals, plants, and, and obviously humanity. Um, but the two stories describe the same events, but they put them in different sequences. So, for example, Genesis 1, 26 through 27, which is the famous, let us create man in, in our image and after our likeness. It states that man and women, man and women were cr- created together in the sixth day after the animals. And the creation story in Genesis 2 states that God created first the man on the on the first day before he created the animals then he creates the plants um then he creates sorry first he creates man then he creates the plants then he creates the animals and finally he creates the woman out of the man um no sorry i'm saying I, i'm getting a little confused so in genesis 1 god creates plants then animals and finally man and woman at the same time right mm-hmm. And then in Genesis 2, God, the order is different. God creates man, then he creates the plants, then he creates the animals, and then finally the woman out of the man's rib. Yes. So that, that tells us that we're dealing with two separate creation accounts that visualize creation differently, and both of them use the name of God, a different name for God. Now, scholars look at that and say, aha, these are two creation narratives that an editor or what they use a redactor, a technical term for it, have combined and together in their present form in Genesis. That is the documentary hypothesis. Two different documents historically created at different time periods brought together by an editor 
in the way that they currently appear in the text. And what scholars were able to show is that there are many um, doublets uh, that take place throughout Genesis, for example. Um, and, and, and there are many times where the text will switch between the divine names of God. And there are many different contradictory viewpoints theologically in the book of Genesis. And when they add up those doublets, when they add up the contradictions, when they add up the names of God, we're able to see that there are continuous documentary narratives in Genesis that can be extra extracted from the text and read as literary holes to tell the story of creation and Abraham and, and the things that, are, that happen in the book of Genesis. And so ultimately what this means to, and this is a, just a very basic introduction to it. What this means is that the book of Genesis is an amalgamation of separate texts that were written by different authors at a different time period. And as I suggested in the previous podcast, this documentary understanding of the development of sources in Genesis is recognized by all biblical scholars, virtually all biblical scholars today, and has been for 200 years. There is debate in the scholarly community as to how the sources line up with one another, which ones are actual whole documents incorporated into Genesis, as opposed to which ones are supplements and whatnot. And that debate will continue probably as forever because we don't have the original documents. But we should not lose track of the fact that just because there is some debate on the minutia, that everybody agrees that these are different historical sources that have been brought together to create our present form of Genesis. And that's the documentary hypothesis in a nutshell. Okay, well, one of the things I find, thank you for that, by the way. One of the things I find interesting about the two different accounts, in addition to the different order of things, is that the second account, the second account seems to have God be much more of a human being. He's the gardener. He's in the garden. He creates man by getting his hands dirty and forming his body out of the dirt of the earth. And when it comes to Eve, he's going to do a ribectomy on Adam and actually do physical things, um, which strikes me as a much more fundamental and probably older account or older vision of God held by people, at least the authors here, than the creation account that's given in chapter one. You correct me if I get this wrong, because chapter one, all of a sudden you don't have this gardener, you don't have this guy who's creating things by getting his hands dirty and forming things. He instead speaks things into existence. He seems much more powerful, more removed, and much more able just to create things by speaking them into existence. He doesn't have to get his hands dirty. And that seems to be actually a later version of God, one who's more powerful, less anthropomorphic, if I can use that expression. Is that pretty much what scholars think? That's absolutely what scholars think. Very good. Um, yeah, the, for the the account of Genesis chapter 2 through 3, which is the so-called Adam and Eve story, that was historically written first. And it is a very anthropomorphic view of God. In fact, um, we read literally that God is going to walk around in the cool of the day in his garden at the same time that a human being would walk around in a garden because... Um, God is that human-like, as opposed to what you see in Genesis 1, where God is quite removed um, from anything 
anthropomorphic other than, you know, creating God, man in, in God's image. But so far as his, his, this view, he speaks and creation comes into being as opposed to getting down and dirty to create the man out of the mud and the woman from the rib and so forth. So you're precisely correct. And what's interesting then is that, is that we see those differences theologically happening all throughout Genesis whenever the divine names are used in the way that they are. When it's Yahweh or the Lord, he's often he's anthropomorphic. And when it's God or Elohim, it's going to be quite removed from that. And so it's very consistent. For example, the flood story in with Noah actually blends, and I show this in author in the Old Testament, I actually lay it out and put it in italics and bold so that you can see the difference. The author has blended the two sources together to create the Noah account. And the one that is connected with Genesis two through three, where God, where the Lord is so anthropomorphic, you're actually going to see the Lord Jehovah actually come and physically shut the, um, the door to the ark and send Noah on his way. So it, 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 there's what this shows is there's a lot of evidence that really supports this, and it's why it's been the norm that has been accepted by scholars for, like I said, about 200 years now. Yeah, and what it makes me think of, by the way, we are going to get to the book of Abraham here in a second, but what it makes me think of is all these wonderful Bible bashes that happen between, say, Mormons and born-again Christians, and uh, the Mormons will talk about the scriptures that show that God is, uh, he has a body, he has a hands, he has feet, and you can see him, all these people see him, right? And then the, um, the born-agains will go to the other passages of scripture and say, no, no man has seen God at any time. He doesn't have this. He doesn't have that. It's a very different form of God. That's the true God. And they both think that they're arguing for the biblical version of what God is really like. When I think that maybe what they're doing is they're going to their proof texts from these different authors of the documents, the documentary hypothesis. That, that, that it happens all of the time. And it's why I tell people there is not a single biblical view on any topic of import uh, it, because there's too much diversity uh, in the sources that have been used. So, you know, even as something so basic as the nature of God, you, there are portions of it, um, like Deuteronomy, for example, where God is doesn't have a physical form. And then there are other parts of it where he is so anthropomorphic or human-like that he'll literally sit down and eat a meal with um the elders up on the mountaintop. So yeah, it's, it's, you're right. There is, it doesn't matter. And the same thing is true with, um, you know, biblical views on love and sex and marriage and, you know, everything else. Um, because the books of the Hebrew Bible were written over a thousand year time period. The earliest parts of the Bible were written about 1200 or so probably, you know, at least date to that time period. Um, and yet, and then it goes to about 200 or so BCE, so about a, a thousand year period. And religion exists in a perpetual state of flux. It's always changing. Just think about how radically Mormonism has changed in our lifetimes, RFM. Now imagine, you know, a thousand years in ancient Israelite history. It's why you're going to see so much diversity of thought and viewpoint and contradictions in and throughout the Bible. Let me do the segue right now, okay, to the book of Abraham, because this just occurred to me, is that here you've got a creation account, which we have now in Genesis chapter 2, and views on God develop. They become more refined, more advanced, whatever you want to call it. 
but they change, right? And so now another author, another redactor comes along and he has got a new and improved or at least modified view of how God would have created things. He wouldn't have, you know, come down and actually walked in the garden because God can't do that because he doesn't have a body anymore, right? And so we're going to create a new creation account. We're going to have God speak things into existence. So he creates the first chapter of Genesis. What we have is the first chapter of Genesis and does that creation account, okay? Now, going to Abraham, here's Joseph Smith who has learned some really new and really exciting and thought-provoking ideas from his Hebrew classes about the, the fact that Elohim can not only mean God in an exalted sense or honorific sense, I sound like I spoke Japanese at one time, an honorific sense, but also a plurality. It can mean plural as well as singular in an exalted sense. And Hebrew is not the only language that does that. German does it as well. I studied German in high school. That's why I got called to Japan on my mission. But yeah, so he thinks plurality of gods, and this is very appealing to him. And he learns that the Hebrew word that's translated as make um, or create in the Genesis account can also mean uh, form or fashion or organize. So there's this, this also starts very much interesting him. And so what he ends up doing now, he's already gone through the book of Genesis and his Joseph Smith translation. And we have that in the book of Moses, right? We have the same creation chapters there, but now five years later, no, no, excuse me, 12 years, 10 years or so later in 1842, when he gets to this part of the translation of the book of Abraham, he's ready to go back at it again. He's ready to come up with a new account of translation. That's going to take into account the new things that he's learned and is going to incorporate these ideas into his new Genesis creation account, kind of like the way that Genesis 1 incorporates new ideas about the creation account into the older version that we find in Genesis 2. What do you think? Exactly. Precisely. And there's that famous King Follett sermon, right, where Joseph Smith says, um, you know, um, Elohim means gods in the plural in Hebrew. And he says, uh, in essence, to paraphrase, uh, I once asked a learned Jew if it means gods in the plural, why not render it that way throughout the text? And the response was, well, that would ruin the whole Bible. I mean, I'm, right, that, that famous King Follett sermon. Yes, technically, I think it was a sermon in the Grove, but they're given a few. <laughs> oh, you're right. You're so right. We talked about this before, and because he talks about similar things in both. But but that, that reference to the learned Jew, who pretty much everybody has agreed, that's Joshua Satius that he's talking mm -hmm. about. In 1844, he's referring back to 1836 when he studied with him. That learned Jew that he talks to, right? He's got a little bit of an argument going with Joshua Satius because he learns from Joshua Satius that this could also be plural Elohim. And then Joseph Smith's going, well, why not just render it plural throughout? Yeah. And I wish I could have, um, it, I wish I could have talked to him because it, the answer is actually is is pretty direct and why you don't do that and why um why bible translations don't follow that pattern um the word elohim technically and i'll be you know try to explain this but it's a concretized abstract plural form um so the way to make a plural in in english or sorry in english is to add an s or an es and in um nouns that are masculine because they are gendered like in Spanish and other language in Hebrew. Um, you add an im to a noun and um, like, for example, cherubim, those creatures that uh, are 
uh, mentioned in the Bible, cherubim means cherubs, or seraphim in Isaiah chapter 6 means sarafs in the plural. Elohim literally means gods, um, and yet, and the base of Elohim, I should state, is actually the Hebrew noun Eloah, which is the Hebrew cognate of Allah. And I won't explain why the, the letters shift, but we can explain why they shift and why they're actually are between Arabic and Hebrew and why they are actually the same uh, nouns. So, for example, in the, in, the, um, in the Ten Commandments, we'll read, Thou shalt have no other Elohim, gods before me. And it's, it's correct. But why not render, therefore, Elohim in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, as gods in the plural, the way that it is presented in the book of Abraham? Well, it, the reason being is because the word, although it technically is a plural, form it is abstract and it means more something like divinity or something historically is the kind of from an english perspective and it is used therefore to represent the personification of that divinity or godhood god and therefore meant to be used uh, uh, singularly and we can tell therefore when that the authors now we can't always tell what when the authors mean one or the other but in most cases we can tell because of the grammatical constituents that surround the use of elohim so if the verb form in genesis chapter one is third person masculine singular bara to create it means that they're using elohim to mean God singular, and it's a correct translation. Or if the adjectival forms that are connected with God are, are plural or they're singular, then you could tell which one that the author meant, and um, you wouldn't have to guess in the way that Joseph Smith assumes. Right. So it sounds to me like there's actually a reason uh, based in the Hebrew language as to why it is that Elohim is represented or translated as God, because it doesn't make sense almost all the time. <laughs> almost yeah. all the time to to make it a plural because it can't be a plural because of the the linguistic construct of Hebrew and the way it's in the um the sentence it's sort of like uh what is it in English where you've got to keep your tenses uh consistent throughout a sentence uh or you know sometimes we do that in English as well we yeah. wouldn't say I have one chickens mm-hmm. something like that or or I had a chickens or the chickens went exactly. to roost because that would be mixing a singular uh, what determinative concrete abstract? I can't remember what you said, but whatever it is, you're mixing something that denotes you're talking about a singular, and then you're putting a plural in there, and then everybody kind of cringes and looks at you like you're from I don't know up river somewhere. Yeah, and that's what Joseph Smith is is doing. He his theology has evolved at the stage that he creates this text to embrace the concept of a multiplicity of gods, and so that's what appears articulated in the book of Abraham, and our audience will already recognize, especially those who are thinking about the structure of the book of Abraham, that um, chapter four of the book of Abraham is Genesis chapter one, and chapter five then takes us into Genesis chapter two. And it's both are amalgamated and presented as if they are coming to us from Abraham himself, when in reality, we know through the documentary hypothesis that these are separate creation stories written at a different time period by different Judean authors that have been brought together in the book of Genesis. Well, Joseph Smith doesn't know that. He assumes it's all there as one consistent story. And so he blends the two 
desperate historical sources in the creation of that account, which again tells us that it's not something that Abraham couldn't have written. Uh, Number one, because the actual sources are composed in Hebrew at a much later time period than Abraham would have lived. And number two, they are written by two different historical authors, yet presented as if they are both coming to us from Abraham. And that is a huge anachronism for the book of Abraham. David, I don't, I'm not sure you've covered this before, but basically as far as a timeline, I know you're going to have to ballpark this even for what the scholars think, but uh, when is it that the scholars believe that the earliest creation account was written, that was uh, Genesis chapter 2, when is it that they believe that the second or later gen, um, creation account of Genesis 1 was written, and then when do they think that they were combined into the same text? Do you have an idea for those? Sure. You know, and okay, so the first account that um, we talked about in Genesis chapter 1, which is written later, stems from that priestly source that we discussed um, earlier um, that has the references to Ur of the Chaldees and, and things like that. So that's around uh, the 500s BCE? Yes. some It would have been written probably around there, that time period. And in fact, although we can't be precise, but it's it's connected with that priestly tradition, which is has text the parts of it that were influenced by the the um, Jewish exile as well. So, I mean, that particular document probably isn't fully composed until until after the exilic time period. Now, I can't say exactly when. You know, if Genesis 1 was written before that and added to the priestly document, I mean, that would take us into a lot of speculation, of course. Um, but that'll just give you an idea as to what, as to kind of what we're talking about in the time frame of what was composed. And by the way, um, we, as we discussed, that Genesis chapter one was influenced by the Babylonian account, Anuma Elish, which again tells us that it's written by Judean scribes who are working with those accounts. And we have to take that into consideration because, um, you know, Abraham would have, you know, not been involved with, with, with something along those lines. So then probably being conservative, then the earliest that the uh, latest account, the earliest that the latest account <laughs> would have been written would have been, um, oh, the 600s BCE. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's no, fair enough to say. No earlier than that. Yeah. Yeah. No, definitely. Um, definitely not earlier than that. Now the, the second account is a little bit more con. I mean, everybody ever agrees on what we've just talked about from a school, uh, a scholarly perspective. Um, the second one that is in Genesis two through, through three, which is the Adam and Eve story, um, documentary scholars would call that the J account. And by J we are using that, um, that letter to represent the name, the name Jehovah or Lord or Yahweh in Hebrew, which is what that source tends to do uh, in its representation of God. Now, um, now for many years, scholars believed um, according to the original version of the documentary hypothesis as synthesized by, by Julius Bellhausen, that that J is the oldest documentary source in the Pentateuch. And it was probably, according to that view, written sometime during the 10th or possibly the 9th centuries BCE. But subsequent studies on that J material um, have really um, presented very compelling arguments from my perspective that portions of J cannot be earlier than the 7th century BCE. So it is going to predate 
the priestly material. And that's, that's quite obvious. Now, it's a bit controversial. I am now most, most uh, Israeli and North American biblical scholars continue to believe that though that that J source is a full documentary tradition put into the um, book of Genesis, but there are many continental or European scholars who recognize it as a separate source, but don't believe that it's, it's, it's a, um, it's a document that we can date and that it's their fragments and things like that, that have been put into. So it's a little bit speculative. It depends on which branch of scholarship we're looking at. We shouldn't get distracted, though, from the fact that regardless of the documentary tradition that a contemporary scholar embraces, everybody acknowledges that these are separate creationist accounts that were produced um, long after the time period of Abraham. So I think from this, we can once again conclude that the author of the book of Abraham is somebody who created their work after both of those accounts of creation were created and after both of them were placed in sequence in the Bible. Yes, that's not even up for debate, which is, again, one of the reasons why a Mormon apologists who are aware of the scholarship and on this will kind of and still want to preserve the text as something ancient and authentic uh, historically will we'll say, oh, well, it was written by a Jewish redactor. Um, after these sources were combined and, you know, oh. in Egypt and, and they'll, they'll make that argument because of this compelling evidence that we're discussing. I will tell you that it does seem that even in apologetic circles, almost the only thing that's talked about about the book of Abraham is chapter one and chapter three, which are sort of the, the new stuff that mm-hmm. Joseph Smith came up with. But when it comes to Abraham chapter two and four and five, which is uh, reworked material from the King James version of the Bible, I don't hear a lot about that from apologists. Do you? No, no, it's something that's typically ignored. And it's one of the reasons why going back to our previous discussion that John Gee disparaged the documentary hypothesis because um you know, I, 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 obviously he's not going to be concerned that there are sources that in an editor like Mormon, you know, is described in the Book of Mormon that did something like that for the for the Book of Genesis. That's not going to bother him. What fundamentally bothers him is the fact that this evidence is going to um, show us that the Book of Abraham was not composed by Abraham himself and can in no way historically be linked with that man, assuming that he even was a real person, which he he probably wasn't. Well, you're right, because now now you've got me looking at it from John Gee's point of view. He's very committed to the idea that Abraham, number one, was a real person, that number two, he must have lived at around 1800 BCE because of that Egyptian influence argument that he has to make the book of Abraham conform to. And therefore, how do you explain Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, the two creation accounts showing up in the book of Abraham? That would seem difficult. It's impossible, which is one one of the main reasons why he's so adamantly opposed to the documentary hypothesis. And why I never hear him talking about Abraham chapter four and five. Yeah. But we should do, I I know our time is starting to run um, short, but we should actually, um, now that we've set that foundation, because it's not just the creation stories that are blended together 
at the end of the book of Abraham, um, showing that these are different documentary traditions that are put into the book by Joseph Smith. It's actually, as you RFM already led us towards, it's actually in Genesis chapter two as well, that begins the story of his life. And what is it the documentary hypothesis can tell us about that, David? Okay, let's do it. So this is so fun. Let me actually start just with the book of Genesis itself. I'm putting my reading glasses on here, um, which I have to use now, by the way. (laughs) Um, So I have my reading glasses on and I'm in Genesis chapter 11. Let's start with that, where Abraham is introduced in the genealogy list. So I'm in Genesis 11. And so our audience will know, I'm actually don't have the King James in front of me. I'm going to look at the Jewish Publication Society translation and it, it doesn't matter. It's just a more recent version. Um, so I'll begin with verse 26, which talks about Terah, who is the father of Abram. Verse 26, Terah had lived 70 years. He begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now this is the line of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran begot Lot. Haran died in the lifetime of his father Terah in his native land, Ur of the Chaldeans. And if our audience is paying attention, they'll know already based upon what I shared, what documentary source that's coming from. Remember, Ur of the Chaldeans, that is always P. P. Exactly. So this is the priestly source. And it makes sense because the priestly source is concerned with lineage and is always going to use a lot of uh, genealogy lists so that it's consistent throughout the, the, the tradition. Anyway, continuing, verse 29, Abram and Nahor took to themselves wives, the name of Abram's wife being Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, and the daughter of Haran, the daughter of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren, and she had no child. Verse 31, Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and they set out together from Ur of the Chaldeans for the land of Canaan. But when they had come as far as Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah came to 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Okay, so that what I just read is Genesis 11, uh, verses 26 through 32, which conclude the chapter. Now, to properly interpret the book of Genesis historically, readers need to learn to ignore the chapter divisions. He actually has to learn to ignore the verse divisions as well, because... um, this, these were added much later to the Bible and are not reflective of the original text. And many times they break up sections that we today know should be linked together historically. Okay. So if we just continue the story, so we have noticed that in verse 31, Terah took his son Abram and they and his wife and his family and all together they set out and they leave Ur of the Chaldees for the land of Canaan, right? Yes. Then the next, then the story continues into chapter 12. The Lord said to Abram, go forth from your native land and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. Do we just go back in time? We, we, it's, it's very confusing, is it not? Mm -hmm. So the idea that Abram began his trek to Canaan together with his father, Terah, which happens at the end of chapter 11, it directly contradicts the impression that we receive in 12.1, where Abraham leaves his father's house to go to an unnamed land that turns out later, of course, to be the land of Canaan. And it source critics, like myself, we know why that's happening. It's because, indeed, 
that chapter 11 material stems from P, the priestly source, and that account has Abram leaving his father's house for King, and, and sorry, that has him leaving with his father to go to the land of Canaan. But the next tradition, which is J, according to the traditional model of the documentary hypothesis, because it's using the Lord, Yahweh, notice that that account has Abram leaving his father's house for Canaan, and it contradicts, they are, they are two contradictory understandings of when Abraham left and why he left and what he did, what he did. Did I explain that okay? Yes. All right. So what do we see happening when we turn to the book of Abraham in chapter two? Well, the first part of it is going to draw upon the information presented in P. And the second part is going to continue the narrative as it's presented in J. In essence, harmonizing these two desperate documentary sources as if they are one story and that it is Abraham himself in the first person who is narrating these. And it's why it provides further evidence that, in fact, Abraham did not write this, but this is someone who has the King James Version of the Bible and is interpreting these separate historical traditions as if they were one literary whole, which we know that they're not. And is smoothing out the wrinkle? Yes, precisely. Oh, he does. He absolutely does, because he actually omits this whole, the, the, although he's going to draw upon the first part of that priestly material that I told you about to create the relationship between the, the people. And you can see the direct connection between the King James Version and um, the opening of that lineage with Abraham. He actually, Joseph Smith is actually going to omit the part that is problematic, which happens in Genesis 11, verse 31. Um where we're going to read uh, that uh, that um, Abram and they set out together with the family from Ur of the Chaldees with his father, and they go in that direction. He'll actually omit that section because I don't know if it's intentional, RFM, or if he's just smoothing out the wrinkle, but for whatever reason, he draws upon part of the source but omits that problem and then moves on to J, which um, gives us ultimately the promise and and that uh, he's going to receive, which is elaborated in the book of Abraham. Well, a couple of thoughts about that is first off that this unidentified mutual friend that we have has pointed out to me, not only that that's a problem in the text and a contradiction mm -hmm. in the text, but that that has been seen for a long time among Bible scholars, maybe even before the documentary hypothesis, but at least we understand that Joseph Smith did not necessarily have to identify that himself as a problem with the text because it is mentioned very clearly in the Adam Clark Bible commentary that this is a problem in the text, that there appears to be a, uh, like you say, a disparity. Yeah. Counts. And I don't know if he was talking about the documentary hypothesis, but we do know that Joseph Smith was intimately acquainted with the Adam Clark Bible commentary. So either he could have seen it himself or he could have gotten the idea from Adam Clark that this is a problem and it needs to be fixed, much like Joseph Smith in his Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. A lot of time he spends harmonizing different accounts like among the Gospels and trying to make them match each other so they don't have so many different details describing the same event. Yes. Yes. So, that, so that makes sense to me. Now, I want to ask you, what does this tell us about the person who is the author of the book of Abraham? If they have both accounts in, fr in front of them, they have the biblical account with both of these two uh, documents, 
this documentary hypothesis thing. They include both of them, as we saw in Abraham 4 and 5. We're seeing it again here in Abraham chapter 2. And yet the additional step is being taken now, that there's a wrinkle there that's left when you put these two documents together in the Bible, and he smooths it out. What can Mm. we learn from that? Well, we learn immediately. I mean, scholars typically approach a text and um, they will look at it and they will look about the problems and the inconsistencies and compare that with when things get smoothed out. And that is a very strong indication that um, the older reading is the more cumbersome and difficult as opposed to the newer one, because it's more likely historically what we know about scribalization that um, scribes would tend to do exactly what Joseph Smith does here and smooth out the wrinkles to borrow your your term, knowledge, as opposed to um, bring in problems and contradictions and challenges um, at, you know, at a later stage. Did I explain that okay? Oh, yeah. They're doing uh, just what Joseph Smith wanted to do, which is to harmonize the different accounts to make them match each other. Yeah. And so that's a strong indication immediately for scholars that the harmonized and less cumbersome reading is the more recent one as opposed to, um, you know, one that has challenges like that. Right. So this appears to be a more recent reading or translation, if I can use that word, apparently it means anything you want it to nowadays when you're talking yeah. about Joseph Smith and his his scriptures. Uh, but um, this is a translation that was made uh, long after the time of Abraham. And apparently, I mean, it does use the King James Version English. I can't help but notice that when it's talking about that here in chapter two. And it very closely follows it, but it goes out of its way to identify and then take care of this contradiction between those two stories told in the Genesis account. Get rid of that. So mm-hmm. it appears that this is a an authorship of relatively recent date. Absolutely is, without question, because not only does it get rid of that part that is a challenge, but again, returning to the fundamental point, these are two separate sources that are both harmonized and blended together to tell the story of Abraham. So whoever composed this believed that um, it was one unified story with, with problems like what we see there that needed to be addressed, but ultimately coming from one individual author, ultimately Moses, right, is what they believed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yet we know today through modern scholarship that the two sources that, are, that appear to form this part of the story of Abraham as he begins his, his journey from Ur, um, that they were written long after his time period by different authors. So that tells us right there, again, the anachronism and helps us understand Joseph Smith as, as author of this text. Let me throw in one more observation that I'm going to give the last word to you. Cause we're coming up here on the end of our three hour mark. We may have gotten started a little bit late, but uh, we probably have to end here in a few minutes. Here's the observation that I have, which just occurs to me. I think that if we're going to presume that Joseph Smith wrote the book of Abraham, I know it's way out there. It's a crazy idea, <laughs> but if we're going to presume that Joseph Smith wrote that, what I can see him doing here, in smoothing out this wrinkle in the text, is attempting to restore what he saw as the original version of it, because the original version wouldn't have this contradiction. The original version would be consistent. And therefore, he's doing this as an indicator that he is actually restoring what was originally there. And the irony being 
is that because he was not familiar with the documentary hypothesis and that there are actually different documents that were um, put together and assembled together and overlap each other and as you've described it, what he ends up doing by smoothing it out, even though he's intending to show he's restoring the original meeting, what he uh, meaning, what he's inadvertently doing is putting his fingerprints on the text itself as being the author. Yeah. Yeah, precisely. Precisely, RFM. And we have only, we should share with our audience, we've, even though we've done this for three hours now, we've really only scratched the surface on all of this information that is out there. So when you combine um, biblical scholarship and our understanding of ancient Near Eastern history with what Dr. Rittner shared in your lengthy interviews with him and, and, and John, it, it's just, it's, it's a no-brainer it, that this is a 19th century text produced by Joseph Smith um, that reflects his, his theological concerns as they evolved and changed over time, that provides origins um, and ties in, you know, the African community with curses and, and Canaanites and things like that that are happening um, in, as a reflection of his day and age. And this is so important because um, that is the context for when this book was written. It's very clear. It's a 19th century text. I mean, it's not even up for debate. The evidence is so compelling. And if we take it out of context, which apologists want to do, and put it into the ancient world, well, when you take something out of context, by definition, you change its meaning, and you change the purpose for which it was composed and the authorial intent. And so, as, and I'm not even talking about theologically speaking, I'm just talking about as, from, as an historian and as a critical reader of text, I have, I have a problem with that. I have a problem with taking things out of context. Well, I think then, in summary, as the clock strikes in Julius Caesar, mm-hmm. uh, yes. uh, in, in context, and I think that what you have shown is that even when we do what the apologists ask us to do, which is ignore the man behind the curtain, which is the translation method, of the book of Abraham and how Joseph Smith produced this text. And when we do what they ask us to do and look at the text itself and really dive deep into it, which you were uh, kind enough to allow us to do with your skills and your education and the tools that you have learned in order to look at it, um, what we end up seeing is the same thing. Mm -hmm. We do. The method of its translation shows or indicates strongly that it was produced by Joseph Smith in the 19th century. And the text itself, when we just totally don't even look at that part about how it was produced, but look at what was produced, it once again shows that it was produced by Joseph Smith in the early 19th century. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this has been a great, great time. And uh, by the way, I hope to get a promise from you that we can come on again and talk for maybe another three hours about chapter three. <laughs> you know, I, we have to do this because I've, I've really enjoyed um, our, the friendship that you and I have cultivated, especially over the past couple of weeks and just bouncing these ideas back and forth with you. Um, yeah, I, I would love to do that. I, I you know, and I, I would feel it would be problematic for me to not end on, on somewhat of a positive note for, for believers. Look, I, I, we shared last time, people know where I stand. I'm, I'm disengaged entirely um, from the LDS church, but 
I articulated this view in, in author in the Old Testament, and I, I stand by it. I do believe that it is rational for a believer to accept the, the information that we have shared, accept what, what um, Dr. Rittner shared, and still approach the book as, as inspired scripture. I, I, it, it really, it's, it, biblical scholars, critical biblical scholars have been doing that with the Hebrew Bible, the New Testament, for, for decades now. Um, so if it works for them, it, it can work for Latter-day Saints. Now, I recognize that it can be a challenge, and the big challenge, RFM, that I see with this, and it's it's why I'm at where I'm at today, and it has to be acknowledged. If a believer adopts the perspective that I have articulated, and that is that Joseph Smith was um, actualizing Abraham, the father of um, the Abrahamic faiths for a Mormon audience and producing theology and doctrine that it reflected his evolving understanding and that can be inspiring and helpful to Latter-day Saints and therefore scripture in that sense. If one embraces that, it's the same challenge that one faces with the Book of Mormon, which is not an ancient account, but a 19th century document produced by Joseph Smith. It's what happens RFM and I've seen this in my own life, is that it, it creates a sense of spiritual and religious independence on the part of the believer. Because if you are able to look and say, well, I feel connected with God through this, even though I accept all of the critical evidence and therefore I shift my paradigm, ultimately that does call into question how literal things like priesthood restoration might be that Joseph Smith talked about. And not only does it call those things into question, and of course the apologists recognize it, as do the church leaders, which is why they don't want to go in this direction. But not only does it call into question those issues, but with that spiritual independence, um, you're starting to recognize that the, the value of Mormonism is that it is um, that it has prophetic leadership. And that is ultimately how the church itself uses these texts. I mean, just think about how missionaries use the Book of Mormon. Missionaries don't go into investigators and say, let's talk about the heartland theory. Let's talk about, you know, the Mesoamerican model. Let's talk about all of the evidence. And after you've read this and studied it year after year, you'll know that it's an ancient historical account from the evidence and therefore you'll accept baptism. No, what we did as missionaries is we go into people's homes and we say, read this chapter, read this verse, ask God if it's true. And when you feel it is true when he's told you this, then you will know that Joseph Smith was a true prophet. And if you know Joseph Smith was a true prophet, then you know that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is God's true church today and that we are led today by a living prophet, seer, and revelator, even Russell and Nelson or whoever it might be at the time. So the way the church uses these texts, whether it's the Book of Abraham or the Book of Mormon, is not for the information that's contained in them as much as what they represent ideologically. They represent priesthood authority, that Joseph Smith had produced stuff with the help of God, and that that gave him authority and priesthood authority that has been passed down through the church and ultimately to the apostles and the first presidency today. And the, so the problem with taking the approach that I have advocated is that um, that means the church leaders have to be really, really good. Because um, if you're using them as spiritual guides, and yet you have recognized that these books actually were produced by Joseph Smith, and it changes your viewpoint, and you therefore have a view that allows you to determine 
what is spiritual and what is not, then you're going to take that same approach ultimately to general conference address and what comes through church leaders. And if what they're giving you, you find problematic, you're not going to stay because you've already determined that as an individual, you know, that God is speaking to you or not and, and, and whatnot through the text themselves and that they don't necessarily represent the traditional model of authority that the LDS church is putting forward. That means that puts a lot of responsibility on the church leaders that they had better be teaching some really good values and principles that are going to help individuals lead good, happy, moral lives and spiritual lives and help society advance. And if they don't live up to that expectation, you as someone who has already adopted a non-traditional model for understanding all of this are going to be very critical of what they're presenting. And that will ultimately lead many people to disengage as it has myself. So it's not as if my Bible scholarship um, didn't present challenges. It's, it, it, they did, but I was able to resolve those in the way that I've described. But ultimately, that put a huge burden, probably an unfair burden in some ways, upon church leaders to, to, to really do what is right and to, to lead me and my family as spiritual guides. And if they couldn't do that, then what am I left with? Um, because ultimately, if we think about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, most Christians believe in an afterlife in heaven. Most Christians believe that they're going to be with their families forever because of Jesus. Most Christians believe in service and kindness and all of the good things, wonderful, beautiful things that are found in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And let us not trivialize the fact that it creates a community. But RFM, all of those things can be found elsewhere. They can be found in other religions. They can be found in the post-Mormon community of which I'm a part now. And it's become my family and that I love dearly. In fact, I'm happier now than I ever have been in my life. In fact, I've got to share this. I know we're long, but I have to share this analogy. So I was, I grew up as a hippie surfer kid, uninterested in education, passionate about the ocean. And we used to go RFM when I was a teenager. We had this secret spot. We'd park up. It was in Del Mar, if people know where that area is. And we'd park up on top of up of the hill and hike down with our surfboards through this canyon and go through this long, dark drainage ditch. And it was dark and you know, it was a little bit scary, but you'd get through that drainage ditch and then you would be out on this beach with these amazing waves and sunshine and beautiful ocean and you'd have it all to yourself. And it was just, I had some of the best days of my, of my life, of my childhood spent in that environment. And, you know, I appreciate the feedback that people have given on that first interview where they've talked about, um, that they can tell by the way I talk about these things that I've worked through issues and I am in a good place and I'm not angry or bitter. And it's true. I'm not at all. Um, because I feel like I went through that dark tunnel with CES, with BYU. I was there at that dark tunnel and going through all of that. And now I'm on that beach again now. And really for the first time in my adult life where I just feel so liberated and free spiritually and independent. And it is a glorious and wonderful thing. Um, and it is ultimately, I can't, the truth is, is my studies in critical scholarship, which gave me the tools that when I found myself at odds with church leaders and the way that they were going, I was able to say, all right, 
I need to disengage. And that doesn't make it easy. It's a difficult, dark journey through that drainage pipe, you know, like I had as a kid. But ultimately, when you get through that, and those of us who are on the outside, it it's we're on that beautiful sandy beach, and it's a glorious thing. You shot the curl. Yeah. So anyway, I know that was a little bit lengthy and we we're over time, but I, I just felt like a, a need to kind of share where I'm at and, and, and my feelings kind of sum that up. Thank you for letting me do that. Oh, absolutely. We will let you have the final word, although we're going to definitely have to plan on doing a part three here. But for today, for today, thank you so much, David Bakavoy, Professor Bakavoy, Dr. Bakavoy, for coming on the show and speaking to the audience about the Book of Abraham. Really, really enjoyed the conversation. Me too, RFM. I appreciate the opportunity and also your friendship and, and for the audience that have paid attention. Lots of love. Well, I don't think anybody's fallen asleep. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.